I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Our impulses are being redirected. We are living in an artificially induced state of consciousness that resembles sleep. The movement was begun eight months ago by a small group of scientists who discovered, quite by accident, these signals being sent through town. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, part of the Morbidly Beautiful Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, joined once again by my fantastic co-host, Jerry Smith. Jerry, how are we doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good, pretty good. It's it's a nice day outside, you hear the birds Mm -hmm. chirping, and I'm really excited to talk about this movie. I love when we do these kind of one-off episodes, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like a palate cleanser, so this is a lot of fun. Yeah. Speaking of it being a nice day, it snowed in Massachusetts today. Oh, wow. It's, yeah. There uh, was just a massive wave of cold hair. Uh, we didn't get hit that bad. Like, we just got this little dusting that is already gone. My mom is about an hour north, and she's like, yep, we've got a little bit of snow here. It is May 9th as we record this, and we're getting snow. Basically, 2020 has the world's most like fucked up sense of humor at this point. I'm jealous. The last time we got snow where I lived was 1999. Really? Yeah. Like I have to, I have to drive, I have to drive a good three Mm -hmm. hours to the mountains just to be around snow. Yeah. I don't like, I don't like snow. I really don't like snow. Um, so I'm just wondering if the, the cold air is going to blow in some murder hornets, too, at this point, <laughs> just to make the year even better at this point. Hasn't it um, gotten to the point where, like, nothing could happen that would surprise you, you know? Pretty like, much. Yeah. Pretty much. I feel like 2020 Mother Nature has told us, like, I gave you years to get your shit together and you refuse to do it. It's like, you know, when you like fuck up a lot as a kid and your parents finally get tired of you and throw you out of the house. Like mother nature is basically throwing us off the planet at this point. Common sense too. Like I've noticed online, like I think last week I saw quite a few people uh, just going out of their way to defend the nightmare on Elm street remake. Oh it's yeah. Just, it's like guys, 2020 is rough. I know, mm-hmm. trust me. But yeah. come on, come on. Yeah, I think I <laughs> said to like one person was like, "Hey, you know, is the 2010 Nightmare on Elm Street remake better than we remember?" Like, collect this no. article to find out. <laughs> and I'm like, I think I responded, "If this article is any longer than the word no, then it's too long." <laughs> God, that's you know? great. I'm so and, proud of you for and, that. One. And, 
person who wrote it like said it is not better than we remember and then you know she wrote like a terrific article about um you know all of its flaws but i mean you could really just some like some things aren't worth getting that much into a lather over and like the elm street remake it's not worth it that being well, said when we cover elm street it will now be like a six hour episode on the remake <laughs> right well i've also noticed that like a lot of people get mad about headlines like mm-hmm. you know like like that might not even have been her headline oh of like course. there was one time there was one time when i wrote for shock till you drop uh i pitched this article because everyone this is before uh uh andy muschetti's uh it chapter one came out and i had already seen it from like a, a early screening and I really enjoyed it, loved it. But then people online were so hateful about the movie before it came out, which is mm-hmm. funny because it instantly changed when it came out. But before, there was a lot of venom. So I pitched this article to uh, Chris Alexander, who was the editor-in-chief at Shock Till You Drop when I wrote for them, about uh, an article about, like, maybe let's not be so quick to hate the new one, you know, given that there, there are some issues with the miniseries. You know, maybe we're, we're looking at it in a nostalgic lens. Let's give the new one a fair shake. And it had a different headline, but when it came out, oh god, when it came out, the headline was suddenly changed into something along the lines of uh, how the miniseries isn't as good as people remembered. Right. And I had so many people in the horror community pissed at me over that, mm-hmm. and I had to tell each of them, like, dude, that was not my headline. I did not write that headline right. at all. So I feel like a lot of these sites that are almost like clickbaity to the, the to the sense like they want something so kind of controversial in a headline that you know you know what I mean? Right. Like for me, any article that has the headline like either "What Everyone Is Getting Wrong About Blank" oh, or God. "No," um, like no blah 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 isn't coming for your blah 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 yeah. things like that. I hate like whoever writes. I just want to like punch that like headline writer in the face with a pitchfork yeah. basically i hate yeah. those you know and they just immediately set me like in the other like there's like some advice columnist i read that i disagree with everything they say <laughs> and i like literally like start my morning like reading their column and getting like myself in a lather at 8 a.m like oh my <laughs> god everything is like so wrong like this advice is terrible and you know like you're a horrible person like how do you have this job and then i'm like why am i reading it like why can't i stop reading well, just the same reason my grandma read, like, National Enquirer and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, you know it's bullshit, you know? But it's just, like, it's it's almost like a, a ritual of your morning to read something, like, extravagantly wrong. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So what are we here to talk about tonight? <laughs> I forgot for a second. I, was I like, know. Uh, pregnancy? No. Uh, yeah, are we we are here. <laughs> God, this one's off the rails already. No, uh, we had the idea... Uh, as far as the palate cleanser, we just finished uh, our creep show series, and we're eventually going to get to the Alien series. But that's such a huge undertaking for us. Uh, I know Mike is a huge fan. Uh, the Alien series for me is almost up there with the Halloween series. Like I just I love every single one of them. So it's going to be a huge episodes. So we wanted to do something quick, uh, you know, like a one off and. Last time we did kind of a one-off, I think it was John Carpenter's Christine, and it was mm-hmm. so much fun. And, you know, we had the idea to let's put a couple more or a few Carpenter titles out there and see what our readers, our listeners would like to hear. And they chose They Live. So we're here to talk about 
John Carpenter's classic They Live. Yeah, and this is we want yeah, I think you would just say we wanted to do something that wasn't necessarily considered like, oh, Carpenter's masterpieces, you know, things yeah. like The Thing, um, Escape from New York, Big Trouble Little China. Um, we wanted to do and I love They Live, so it kind of pains me to say this, because it's probably outside of Halloween and The Thing. It's my favorite movie by him. Oh, but, wow. you know, people don't talk about They Live like they do, you know, Escape from New York or Big Trouble in Little China or even The totally. Fog. Um, and I absolutely love this movie. Um, mm-hmm. And like you said, we thought it would be a fun palate cleanser, something really easy to do. Well, like... You know, three hours of viewing and going through all the special features and like five pages of notes later, <laughs> strap yourselves in because we have was, a lot to say about this. What's funny is I was just thinking about that right, right before we started, how like we were like, you know, let's just do a quick one. And then like to combine our notes are like huge on this movie. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. this will be fun. And we're going to um, we have a little bit of a double show this week, actually, when we finish talking about they live stick around because uh, i was fortunate enough last night i was able to speak to two wwe hall of famers um booker t and diamond dallas page uh as they just appeared in a really fun um b movie penance lane that is now out on video on demand it's kind of like an old school um mutant creature movie with like mm-hmm. a mad scientist and um it was a lot of fun overall and booker and uh diamond dallas page both appear in that and they came on to talk about that movie as well as their careers a bit as well as where they are um right now so after we finish talking about they live kind of please stick around and and, and check that out to for me where i've been like a wrestling fan since i've been like eight years old mm-hmm. um and i'm a lot older than that now um <laughs> it was a lot of fun to kind of to do that so all right totally. so jerry why don't you give like the you know the quick breakdown of they live like what is it they live is a film about this drifter he kind of works job to job kind of off the grid uh called john nada uh, played by uh, Roddy Piper, the great WWE, uh, well, WWF when I was a kid. But yeah, uh, played by Roddy Piper. He plays this kind of working man, keeps his head down, you know, gets the job done and basically leaves. He kind of stumbles across this kind of conspiracy and this kind of invasion from aliens that the whole world is kind of blind to. But once he finds these special glasses, he puts them on and he sees is all this kind of manipulative uh, messaging found within all of our images and everything to teaching people to consume, obey, and it's and he basically has to stop it. And it's a such a such a good film about the dangers of consumerism and so many other political and social uh, topics that I, I, to be honest, I, I find this one to be Carpenter's most political film, and it, it's mm-hmm. a really great movie, really great performances, and as we'll get into later, one of the best fight scenes of all time. I remember last November when we kind of, well, when I got us in some hot water for some of the statements I made against a, you know, certain well-known and very popular horror personality that has a show on Shudder. Um, (laughs) 
when he was railing against like the movies of today versus you know the 70s and 80s and he was like i really miss back when you know genre films didn't have these overt political messages and they live was immediately the movie that jumped to mind you know it's like are you serious right now like i know you've seen this movie and written about it extensively um you know it wasn't a little film and it's not a subtle movie in any way shape or form um but i would say out of carpenter's whole filmography it's still the one that is the most relevant today totally it's it's relevant today and it also spawned so much as far as not just pop culture but also in political landscapes mm-hmm. and even in art i mean i'm sorry i had a burp for a second uh but yeah, I mean the the company Obey, which got really huge, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Shepard Fairley and all them, like that was founded kind of with the idea of what they left like set, mm-hmm. you know, in front of us with this this idea that we're being fed all of these messages in everything that we do. So I mean, this movie I think influenced not only just genre fans as far as being a movie they enjoy, but I think it really made a lot of people in like the art. Uh, climate and and you know the art circles and all that stuff kind of think about uh, advertising and like subliminal messages and kind of what we're being fed as well mm-hmm. yeah and carpenter is is kind of on the record of is saying he's not a person that likes to be told what to do he mm-hmm. doesn't like having a boss that works over him like it's not by accident that so many of his movies say john carpenter's halloween and not just halloween or john carpenter's the fog or john carpenter's the thing like he is very much saying i am the boss here and he said the only i don't like he's said like i don't like having a boss the only time i like there to be a boss is when i'm the boss and i'm the guy in charge (laughs) so this is very much and that's you know why this movie say wasn't made by universal but was made by a small independent company called alive pictures because you know Carpenter needed to have that level of autonomy in order to make this movie. No, totally. Uh, when he was pitching the idea to Universal, uh, in uh, this kind of a uh, uh, on a blank, you know, it's not a direct quote, but something along the lines of how the the executive Universal said something along the lines of, you know, well, what's wrong with that? You know, we all sell out a little bit. You know, like we all sell out every day. Like the the execs when he took to Universal, like they were like they didn't see, you know, they didn't see the problem in the antagonists of this film at all, right. and it speaks volumes. No, absolutely, it does, and he I think he even used that a bit in the climax of the mm-hmm. movie with one of the characters, like, look, you know, if you play the game, we all get a little bit of a piece. Like that's just the way business is yep. done. So you you see him kind of use that. So Jerry, what was the inspiration behind the story uh, behind this movie? Yeah, totally. Uh, they live. Uh, Carpenter was influenced and inspired by this really great short story called Eight O'clock in the Morning by this author Ray Nelson, uh, who was kind of this trippy sci-fi writer. He was a collaborator, collaborator, and a really great friend of Philip K. Dick, who I mean, instrumental and huge in the sci-fi genre. You know, and and Nelson was also responsible for getting giving Philip Dick LSD for the first time, which oh, is boy. huge because I mean that writer. You know, his stuff is pretty out there. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, 8 o'clock in the morning, 
it's this really cool story. It's very different from They Live, but you could still see the kind of seeds that Carpenter took. It's mm-hmm. basically this man wakes up after being hypnotized and discovers that like aliens have taken over everything, and he only has until eight in the morning, the next uh, eight o'clock in the next morning to prove it. Mm-hmm. So Carpenter really enjoyed that, and he took that he took that story, and there was also a comic book adaption back in the day, and Carpenter brought mm-hmm. that and the story the rights, and rewrote it as They Live. But when Carpenter wrote it, because you know it was a short story and someone else had written the comic and all this other stuff, Carpenter felt like there were kind of already a lot of hands in the story. So he didn't want it to say written by John Carpenter because mm-hmm. you know it was clearly influenced by other stuff. So he wrote it under the name of, uh, of Frank Armitage, who is a is kind of like a uh, callback to the works of H.P. Lovecraft, which was mm-hmm. huge for Carpenter, too. I mean, uh, Armitage was in uh, the Dunwich Horror and some other stuff in Lovecraft. So, yeah, it, it's written by Carpenter under a different name, and it was inspired by that really great mm-hmm. short story. Yeah, excellent. I, I, I think I want to track that short story down and kind of read that myself at one point. I think the other thing you see a lot of here as well, I mean, Carpenter obviously has great affection for the science fiction movies of the 1950s uh, and really like the paranoia movies of the 1950s uh, Mm -hmm. where you saw a really a trend in those movies towards speaking out against McCarthyism and this idea um, that we're being infiltrated in some way, shape or form. So obviously he went on to remake the thing from another world. um, But you you saw in Halloween three, the influence of invasion of the body snatchers as well with a town being named Santa Clara. And you have these robots that have infiltrated, um, you know, the town around it. But this is another movie that's really influenced influenced by Invasion of the Body Snatchers. We hear you have these alien creatures that are masquerading as people that are walking among us. And there's, except for these sunglasses, there's no way to determine uh, who is real, who is a human, and who's an alien being. So you still see that influence of like 50 science fiction and um, otherness um, in this movie as well. No, totally. And, you know, we're going to get into Roddy Piper a little more in a little bit. But I, I think right from the beginning, what Carpenter does with this movie is he kind of gives us what we think will be one thing. And he, or, you know, he puts that in front of us and he kind of gives us the opposite. You see Roddy Piper on the screen. You, you're instantly, especially when this film came out, I remember being in the theater, I saw Roddy Piper on screen, and I instantly thought this was going to be like a Predator or a mm-hmm. Schwarzenegger movie or a Stallone movie with explosions. And, you know, it does have action, but it's not about that. I love right from the beginning that Carpenter gives Piper a chance to act and actually be more than mm-hmm. just like an action person in this movie. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, no, no. no. I, I had. I was going to go ahead and let you talk about that. Well, I so said, when you're introduced to Piper in this movie, he's not this kind of oiled up, you know, macho man like uh, Stallone in uh, Rambo First Blood Part Two or mm-hmm. Schwarzenegger in Commando or really any Schwarzenegger movie from the <laughs> 80s. Like, um, you see Piper wearing, like, basically like a, a flannel shirt, uh, denim jeans. He's, he's literally walking 
out of like off the train tracks that he's just hopped and it's raining. Like you basically see a guy who is completely down and out and down on his luck overall. So um, that's really where you, you kind of are introduced to him. Like he's not a hero when you first meet him. He's just like um, everybody, you know, he's just like an every man at that point. Well, that, and you know, it, during that era of, of films, especially in action films, you got all these characters played by Schwarzenegger, played by Stallone, or played by you know Van Damme and stuff, and they they all were these kind of larger than life, arrogant characters. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love those movies with a passion. I mean, I could watch Commando seven days a week and not get tired of it. But what's great about this movie, especially Piper, like like you said, you're introduced him introduced to him after you know hopping off a train, it's raining and all this stuff, and this character John Nada. He's beaten down by life, and he tries mm-hmm. to keep his head down as much as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's not just like larger than life. Like, oh, you know, I'm gonna take everything on. He like, and it's cool. Like later on in the movie, when he discovers everything, he kind of starts getting this sense of satisfaction from just mm-hmm. talking shit to these aliens. You know, yeah, like, it's it's so funny to watch him chew up that scenery. But I think that what makes those scenes work, all those like scenes that ended up being memes and everything else. What makes those work so well is that introduction to the character where he is kind of beat down and he is kind of like, you know, like we don't know what this guy's been through, but we do know that he's been through some shit before the movie started. Well, you You know, feel it. Yeah, you feel it too. just the name itself, like nada, like, you know, basically nothing like Carpenter's telling you right from the get go. Like this, this is just nothing, like yeah. yeah, this man is nothing. And think of like that score that introduces him too, like that Carpenter Howarth, Howarth score yeah. where it's a slow kind of bluesy jam that you hear. There's nothing triumphant about it. There's like not this upbeat, uplifting, heroic um it's a slow blues jam it's different from anything carpenter had really done at that point um but it just that musical cue alone i think tells you almost everything you need to know about piper's character before he even opens his mouth totally Uh, do you go to any of the carpenter live performances when he was going on tour I have not had the opportunity to. I think the last time he played, I mean, he did a couple tours when I was in grad school, and they just mm-hmm. fell on nights that, like, I could not get out of class. Yeah, know. same thing, same exact thing happened to me. I've never been able to see him play, but I got hit that live Blu-ray that he put out, mm-hmm. and it's one of the coolest things ever. And when he does the, the theme for They Live, you know, his whole band stops, because it's like John, his son Cody, his mm-hmm. godson Daniel Davies and all them. Whole band stops. They put on their fucking sunglasses and then they just play that theme awesome. with like images projected. It's one of the mm-hmm. coolest moments. I love that theme so much. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. it's and it's different. Like you almost wouldn't know that it's Carpenter mm-hmm. um, when you stack it up against, you know, Halloween, his other scores. Um, it's probably one of the lesser known Carpenter scores overall, but it, mm-hmm. you know, it's got its moments. No, totally. And another thing that I just love about this movie, and it goes with like most Carpenter movies, uh, you know, with the exception of I think Starman maybe, uh, but the amount of like recurring actors and crew that he's worked with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, as a kid, I was always that that kind of kid that would watch the credits and see you know who did what and that kind of thing. So I'd be obsessed with like the stuntmen and all this stuff. You know, I, I'd write down every single time I'd see someone like Dick Warlock or someone in a, in a mm-hmm. stunt movie 
you know, like when when Starman came out, I saw that Ted White was in it, and I were I was already excited because of Friday the Thirteenth, the final chapter wow. was one of my favorite movies. But this movie, Jeff Amata, who I mean, when we talk about Carpenter, nobody ever really mentions Jeff Amata. Jeff Amata was he was in charge of most of the stunts. He worked with Carpenter in over eight movies. I mean, some of the best ones too. He Jeff Amata not only handled the stunts for this movie. But he played like ninety five percent of the aliens, right. even the women ones. Like mm-hmm. I, I think on the Screen Factory Blu-ray, I haven't seen it in a few years, but I, I think there was something along the lines like they were joking about how they even had him dress up like in dresses and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, to play he the was like the female grocer. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Jeff Amata. I mean, you get people like Peter Jason, who's been in so many Carpenter movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just watched Prince of Darkness again uh, for the millionth time like a couple nights ago, and Peter Jason's great in that. Buck Flower returns as kind of like the homeless man who ends up selling out and being a part mm-hmm. of that. And he was great in also uh, uh, The Fog. You know, I you mean, get Keith, all these. Keith uh, David returning after being in The Thing. Totally. And Carpenter wrote this role for him, mm-hmm. which is awesome. And Keith David is so good in both The Thing and this film. I mean, he steals almost every scene he's in. Mm-hmm. And that says a lot when you're going up against Roddy Piper, because as we'll get in in a minute. Piper was the biggest showboat in a good way. I mean, that guy yeah. just oozed charisma. But yeah, you have all these people. I mean, just like, you know, filmmakers like Martin Scorsese, Tarantino, or De Palma, what's great about Carpenter is he knows exactly what he likes and who he likes and mm-hmm. who he likes to work with. So we get movies like this where there's a lot of returning people or or like films like The Thing where you get Kurt Russell and, you know, so many others that right. I love when filmmakers do that. It's awesome. It also it breeds the sense of familiarity for mm-hmm. the filmmaker where he doesn't really have to worry about what he's going to get out of his performers. He doesn't have to worry about how the film is going to be shot and is he going to have to, you know, or you know how the stunts are going to look because he can trust his crew because there's that they've been in it together already so he knows his crew's strengths and how to play off of them he can just worry about making the best damn movie that he wants at that point so to me like having there's just a a smartness to having a crew you work with over and over and then as a viewer i really enjoy watching like you know even like wes anderson and his um partnership with bill murray over the years and he's brought in like bruce willis and others you know what you're going to get like there's this thing where you are familiar with it and you're comfortable with it and there's like Mm -hmm. the sense of comfort of going in and watching like a scorsese movie when he's partnered with de niro and when he's partnered with pesci you you feel like you're watching old friends again and that's part of like why i love movies and and having that feeling of being kind of comforted and knowing what i'm in for Totally. And I'm not, I agree with you 100%. That and as someone who, I mean, I grew up loving WWF, you know, mm-hmm. as a kid. Like, it was just everything to me, mm-hmm. you know. Like, I didn't care about buying many things, but comic books and paying, saving up my money for, like, pay-per-views of SummerSlam and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff was, like, my life. And mm-hmm. when you get a film like They Live, where you get kind of this, this kind of, you get best of both worlds of, of things that you're into, you know, you get like John Carpenter making a movie with Roddy fucking Piper. Right. Like as as a kid, being like those two things being like the biggest things in my life at the time. Like this movie right from the beginning, I mean, it was just flawless to me. Like, mm-hmm. I, and I don't mean like, oh, this movie's just perfect. I mean like 
it is a hundred percent what any kid who has big fandom in their heart where towards something like wrestling or, or horror movies or sci-fi or anything this is a movie that you get everything right from the beginning right and we're going to talk now about Roddy Piper and go a bit into his wrestling career here because I think anyone listening to this knows, like, sure, Roddy Piper was a pro wrestler and he was, like, popular during the 80s and some of the 90s. Sure, 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 I get it. I think it's almost it's impossible to overstate how critical Roddy Piper was to the growth of the WWF. Um, and just how much of a household name this guy became, you know, mm-hmm. in the mid to late 80s overall. Like, even before he was in the WWF, like, before Vince McMahon Jr. decided to take the WWF and make it a – take it from being, like, a promotion that was based out of New York and did most of their shows in Pennsylvania or New England or New York State – Before that, you had all of these territories uh, for wrestling. And Piper really would, you know, you basically you would wrestle in an area for a couple months. You would work week to week and then you would move on to the next territory and then the next territory. And you would basically make the towns. It basically was like being a band on tour. So that way people never got sick of you. You didn't overstay your welcome. You know, even before Piper made his way to the WWF, like he was over in territories like the Mid-Atlantic, where he was one of the best heels in the business back then. And he'd go to war. And then what, you know, because he could talk basically. And he famously like turned babyface when he defended um, legendary wrestling announcer, Gordon Soley, like came to his defense, came to his aid and the crowd, you know, you how when you hate someone so much when they're a wrestler and then you just, you hate them so much. You just want them to give you a reason to cheer for them mm-hmm. overall. Right. And that was Piper. Piper then goes to the WWF in 83, 84, um, And really, like, Batman isn't the Batman without the Joker. And Hulk Hogan isn't (laughs) Hulk Hogan wrestling icon if it's not for being able to play off a Roddy Piper in the mid-80s. Oh, no, totally. And, I mean, like you said, Piper could talk. I think growing up, you know, I was this rambunctious little kid who, I mean, to be honest, I talked a lot of shit, you know. And there wasn't – I still think to this day there isn't – there, there's never been a wrestler or, or you know, now, you know, WWE superstar, they're called, uh, you know, that had that charisma and that kind of like bravado mm-hmm. that Piper did. Mm-hmm. Like he was just so, you know, these days you'll have a wrestler that's either really good at wrestling or a really good personality. Mm-hmm. But Piper was the best of both. Like he, you know, he talks so much shit. But when he got in the ring, like, dude, he took care of business. He did. Like he was... Between, I mean, Ultimate Warrior and Roddy Piper growing up were, like, my heroes in wrestling, Mm -hmm. you know? And the difference is, Warrior became a a raging asshole in real life, and Piper was, like, one of the nicest guys right up until until he succumbed to cancer, Mm -hmm. you know? This was, like, the perfect heel. The perfect heel. Like, everything from, like, oh, just swagger to, I mean, Piper's pit, his show on WWF. I think it's one of the best segments that that the WWF and WWE eventually. Uh, I mean, WWF wouldn't have been what it was without segments like that. You it's, get all 
Uh-huh. Yeah, it's something that to this day they still try to recapture with these like, um, you know, wrestling interview set where a wrestler will be kind of become an interviewer and they still kind of mimic the formula of Piper's Pit. But no one was able to capture that charisma that Piper had during this segment. So think about like Piper when he would talk. It, it never seemed like he planned on what he was going to say ahead of time. It never came <laughs> off. Not only did it not come off as scripted, it didn't come off like he had, and I'm sure he did, but it never felt like he had put any real thought into what he was saying, that he was just like running off. He was like the – not the town – not the bully on the playground, but you know that little kid that like hangs out behind the bully and it's over mm-hmm. his shoulder and like he talks all the shit in the world and then <laughs> you know like cowers behind the bully? That was Piper. Like, he would just run his mouth and run his mouth, and then he would sucker punch you. That was, yeah, that was always the greatest thing. Is like, I remember tuning into every single segment of Piper's Pit. You knew some shit was going to happen at the end. Mm-hmm. It was a given. It was a given. Roddy would have somebody on the show. He would say awful things to them or do awful things. Very, very un-PC things at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know? And then it would either end with Piper attacking them or like in the case of like, do you remember when Piper had Andre the Giant on Piper's pit? Mm-hmm. And he talked all that shit to Andre the Giant the whole time. And then at the end, Andre just like beat the living hell right. out of him. Just smacked him. <laughs> but to me, like the first oh. time wrestling ever scared me was like Piper's pit with Jimmy Snuka. When oh, he God. smashes a coconut, he basically like humiliates Snuka, smashes a coconut over his head, and then, you know, beats the shit out of him. And then, <laughs> you know, Snuka just tears the set apart in Piper, um, you know, runs out, basically runs, exit stage left out through like a, a metal door. And you just see this closing image of like Snooker kind of clawing at this locked door to get in. Like it's the first time that wrestling ever scared me as a little kid and as a fan um, because it was such a brutal beat down. It was like something that you just weren't used to seeing. No, totally. And and like there were so many great moments like that. I, I remember uh, on one of the segments, Piper visited the set of A-Team basically just to talk shit to Mr. T. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and he like, hated – oh, you first. You, okay. Oh, no, no. I was going to say, like, yeah, those guys were not fans of each other at all. Mm-hmm. He hated Mr. T, and he hated <laughs> having to work with Mr. T. And he basically made Mr. T very paranoid because, you know, like Mr. T – and, you know, the, the boys did – like Piper was smart enough to know, like, look, if I do business with this guy – I'm going to make a lot more money overall. And at the end of the day, like wrestlers are all about their paychecks and making money and moving on to the next town. But like he, you know, I think for legit reasons felt insulted that this guy was kind of getting into his profession and into the ring with them and maybe didn't necessarily have like all the respect in the world for what they did. And, you know, so like Mr. T was super paranoid that Piper was going to shoot on him basically and, mm-hmm. you know, really try to smack him around. Like there was this real bit of paranoia going on. But even before that, um, back in 84, when McMahon, Vince McMahon Jr. was looking to expand and you have MTV, which is this nascent channel, but it's hip. You have like all these up and coming artists on it and you have Cindy Lauper who – 
broke into the mainstream with her single and her video, Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Well, that featured legendary manager Captain Lou Albano on it. McMahon finds a way to kind of work this as an angle. And Cindy Lauper's uh, then-husband and manager, David Wolf, was a massive wrestling fan. Um, Cindy Lauper couldn't really care about it all that much, but David Wolf like, loved pro wrestling. And I think at one point wanted to be a pro wrestler. Um, so McMahon and Wolf partner up. They get MTV involved, and you have these two specials that predate WrestleMania. You have the brawl to settle it all, and you have the war to settle the score. Uh, and Piper involves himself in both of those. In one, he smashes like a gold record over Captain Lou Obano's head, um, <laughs> and that draws like record ratings, like twenty-something million viewers turn into that, which you know, it's a staggering number of people, especially considering cable wasn't in every single household like it is kind of nowadays. Um, you follow that up with the uh, war to settle the score, and it's Hogan and Piper in the main event. Piper gets disqual- Piper gets disqualified. And one thing about Piper, where he was really smart as a business person, he never let Hogan pin him cleanly one two three during this period because he knew the minute that he did that hogan's thing was he would just move on to the next heel the next opponent or big bad to move on and piper's time at the top of the card was going to go down at that point he'd make less money so he would get disqualified he would get counted out he would cheat but he would never give hogan that clean win um but these this war to settle the war to settle the score shatters all sorts of record like pandemonium ensues and it leads to WrestleMania where Piper is in the main event along with uh, Paul Orndorff and Cowboy Bob Orton Jr. against Hogan and Mr. T um, and it's a massive success and this kind of rock and wrestling era is born um you know this hogan snooker sergeant slaughter piper these are all Mm -hmm. these are all household names in the 80s like it's really cannot be stressed enough like how big and how everywhere pro wrestling was back then no totally i mean there's so many wrestlers i remember from that time that were so huge for me like i had every wrestling figure you know big boss men Mm -hmm. uh ravishing rick rude which Randy Savage exactly like I remember my cousins would give me a quarter to do the ravishing Rick Rude like thrust move Mm -hmm. and then I would do it and they would be like we don't have a quarter you know like like all these guys like the honky tonk you know like like demolition man like bushwhackers like there's so many personalities during that time Mm -hmm. though where I could see where it would be hard to fit into that but what was great about Piper, to me at least, is that his personality, I think, outdid all of them. Yeah. Like, he he was just so much fun to watch to where, like, mm-hmm. you'd be watching a match and you're wondering why this guy isn't in movies. Mm-hmm. So when, like, things like They Live came, like, it just seemed natural to me. Yeah. And the thing about Piper, by the time WrestleMania 3 rolls around, he's now a baby face. Like, he's not the heel. He's the good guy now. And what worked for him is he didn't change who he was. Like, he didn't stop talking shit. He didn't stop, you know, 
trying to be like kind of a little bit of a weasel overall. He basically was the same guy, except now he shit talked the other bad guys. So crowds loved him at that point, but he's also looking to make a bit of an exit from wrestling by the time WrestleMania three rolls around. And this is where um, he meets John Carpenter, who was a big wrestling fan. Carpenter's backstage at WrestleMania and he meets Piper and he meets Alice Cooper, who would go on to feature prominently in Prince of Darkness, the year before They Live comes out. Totally. And one really cool thing about that is the reason that Carpenter and Piper met and Alice Cooper and stuff is because Chef Gordon, who was, and to this day, I believe, is Alice Cooper's manager, wanted to get into film. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he and he wanted to find a way for, you know, Alice Cooper to do that, too. Chef Gordon ended up producing uh, Prince of Darkness. He produced They Live. He produced uh, Village of the Damned. He went on to produce films like People Under the Stairs, Shocker, and stuff like that for Wes Craven, too. So, like, the Shep Gordon and Alice Cooper thing plays right into They Live because, you know, Shep wanted to get into movies. And, you know, they loved Carpenter. They loved wrestling. You know, what better way to start – you know, getting into movies that actually in, like mm-hmm. involving everything that you're into at once. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, and it just was a—it's a, just a great partnership overall. And you know, Alice Cooper and John Carpenter just seems like a match made in heaven. I mean, it mm-hmm. really does. You know, it really feels like it's almost one of those things. Where you're like, how have you guys not worked together sooner? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, it just happened to be like really, really fortuitous to have like Carpenter, Piper and Cooper all meet all at once. Um, all right. So let's talk a little bit about the themes of They Live. And again, I would say this is Carpenter's most overtly political film overall. And it's really a reaction to eight years of living under Ronald Reagan as your president. No, Totally. Uh, you know, there's a lot in They Live to kind of chew on, you know, during that time. I mean, Ronald Reagan, you know, like he was basically an actor that became a politician. And, you know, there was such a, a moral code put into line with, with during under mm-hmm. Reagan's administration. You know, it, it was kind of like. It's kind of hard to explain, but like it, it was it was a time in, in history where where we were getting this kind of conservative approach shoved down everyone's throats, you know, and, and they live really speaks on that, you know, as far as consumerism and it's as, as just everything that goes with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, Reagan really cut his bones politically in the 1950s during the McCarthy hear- hearings mm-hmm. of basically accusing fellow actors of being communists and, he his testimony is responsible for a lot of persons being blackballed out of Hollywood at that point. And that's really kind of where so you have this guy who was best known for for like bedtime with Bonzo and being like this guy that acted with the chimpanzee. All of a sudden he's a rising political star. He becomes governor of California and he's best known. Well, He's well known for a couple political speeches or in political ads, the uh, calling America the shining city on the hill. And then in 1984, this reelection campaign ad called Morning in America. Um, And it's a vision of America that's really crouched in 1950s nostalgia, Um, very similar to, I would say, 
what you see nowadays uh, with uh, make Amer- you know make America great again and these MAGA people. Yeah. It leans like Reagan's idea of America leans very heavily into this idea of American exceptionalism and the notion that if as an individual if you pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you just work very hard and have the can-do spirit and keep your nose to the grindstone, you too can come out ahead, you can succeed, and you can become one of the elite members of society. Um, And the reality is, especially based on some of the economic principles that Reagan put into place during this time, the reality is that starting under Reagan – For most Americans, if you worked really hard and were very good at what you did, you went on to help make other people much wealthier and you kind of ended up at the same place. Yeah, it was it was very much the idea of, you know, you know, as long as the rich are doing good, you know, eventually Mm -hmm. the lower class will be okay too. Mm -hmm. You know, and like I, I do think that a lot of the Reagan era falls very much in line with what's going on today. Mm-hmm. I mean, even outside of they live, you know, like there's a lot of similar things. Like who's, who was the focus in the Reagan era? It was upper class white families. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had to be male and female couples, you know, cause anything out outside mm-hmm. of that is, you know, looked down on, right. You know, and it was anyone that's different than this kind of box of what America is mm-hmm. to, to the right, you right. know, anything outside of that box is wrong and they're going to get rid of it right well you saw it with you, like you said with just you know your couples that are male or married couples that are male and female you have in the 1980s the rise of the aids pandemic and almost nothing was done during his time like basically the plight of many um, hundreds of thousands of, of men were ignored because if you had a AIDS was considered basically a gay man's disease. Like mm-hmm. you, you got AIDS if you were either gay or if you were an intravenous drug user and, you know, Reagan's administration had no time to help those people out whatsoever. So this idea of like America is the best country and we want to restore it to its greatness this idea of america being restored to its former greatness was very much rooted in this idea of it's built by white people for white people and it's for protestant americans and god-fearing americans and really everybody else can get to the back of the line like that's the vision of ronald reagan and um the conservative movement that he helped usher into place during this time Sounds pretty familiar, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. So, you know, the big thing, and it, it's it's an idea that carries all throughout They Live, is this idea of trickle-down economics or supply-side economics that was developed by conservative, conservative econ- economist Art Laughter. Uh, basically, it's an idea that Reagan popularized during his campaign in 1980, and uh, his vice president, George Bush, when running against him, famously called it voodoo economics. It's this idea that still carries to this day that if you, as a government, leave business alone and leave the wealthy alone, cut regulations, reduce corporate taxes, reduce the higher income tax rate brackets, if you let the wealthy have more money, then that money will trickle down Mm -hmm. to the middle class and the poverty class because – 
they will then create more jobs. They'll open more factories. They'll spend more money creating a, a more robust retail sector. They'll donate more to charity overall. Like don't have these social – what you see during this time, you saw this concept of like the welfare queen. And the welfare queen was always portrayed as a you know black American single mother who would go out there and just have child after child uh, in order to um, – reap the benefits of the welfare system when the reality the people that had their hand out was this upper one percent overall they were saying cut my taxes overall they were the ones really taking corporate welfare overall what ends up happening you don't have these this real innovation you don't have this job creation and you don't have wages matching the pace of inflation what you have instead is people is this wealthy one percent getting more money and putting that money in their pockets. They either invested in themselves or they pay out the um, board of directors. But during this time, you don't have wages rising anywhere close to what they had been doing in the years before that. You don't have this expanded level of hiring. As a matter of fact, you're starting to see during this time period, millions of blue collar jobs moved overseas. Um, the corporate tax rate uh, and for the in, um, individual tax rate, your highest rate in the night up to the 1970s was at about 70%. That's cut down to 50%, and I think it's like 35% now. Um, so these upper wealthy classes are now seeing their taxes slashed and they're not reinvesting that back into others. Mm -hmm. um, instead, what you have is less money for social programs, for education, um, to really have an efficient running country at this point. And when we say like the tax rate was 70 percent, that doesn't mean that if you made a hundred dollars, you only kept 30 of it. It means that let's say, after ninety dollars, you made say ninety dollars. That last ten bucks was taxed at a seven dollar rate. So you had ninety three dollars instead of say a hundred bucks at that point. Yeah. Um, and that's something that we still see to this day right now. No, totally. Uh, you know, there, there's so much to take in with that whole administration that led to like what Carpenter had to say with this movie. I mean. Even your notes, like I was reading that, and you know, I remember reading about that too. You know, the whole the 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 union hatred mm -hmm. that the administration had. Like it, it's yeah. very, it, it falls in line so much with what's going on today with this mm -hmm. kind of like like retaliation. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it seems like our our current administration, if anyone is speaks up against them or if anyone mm -hmm. does anything, they're you know they'll instantly get fired and retaliated mm -hmm. on. You know, whereas the whole like air controllers thing like that's insane right so for what people that know what we're talking about here because again this is 1981 yeah. um this happens like there's a little line in they live or when piper first walks onto the construction scene and says like look i'm just looking for a job i just want like a fair day's pay for a fair uh for a fair day of work overall he's told by the construction foreman well this is a union crew and Really, that should have been end of story at that point, like it was supposed to go to union members. But you see this weakening of unions where Piper is on the job that day, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and what you see during the Reagan years is you see this real weakening of the union sector. 
1981, 13,000 members of the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Association go on strike. They want better pay. They want better working conditions. They want shorter work weeks. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Summer Rental. It's an early mm-hmm. John Candy movie. But like that's the job that he had, and he was forced to go on vacation for because he was stressed to the gills um, for it. So in 81, August of 81, um, Patka goes on strike. And that day, Reagan basically goes into a rage and says, look, 7,000 flights have been grounded. You have 48 hours to get back to work or you're going to be fired. He issues an executive order to do that. Two days later, 11,000 union members are fired by Reagan. Strike comes to an end and the union is crushed. And just to retaliate further against the striking union members, he initially issues a second executive order two weeks later on August 17th, 1981, and says fired members of the Federal AV, um, fi- members of the Federal a- a- Aviation Association cannot rehire these fired ex-members of the union. Those people are banned for life um, from be- working in this industry. Took their entire livelihoods mm-hmm. based on wanting more mm-hmm. pay. Do you know what I mean? Uh, like, yeah. In shorter hours and better working conditions, Mm -hmm. which, again, sounds like right now where you have these people that are all of a sudden deemed essential workers in grocery stores. And look what's happening with Trump issuing orders to reopen these meatpacking plants where really this COVID virus has run rampant because you have people in extremely close quarters working almost shoulder to shoulder no ppe equipment and people are terrified like and i'm going to get sick um and so they were sent home the places were closed and now you have executive orders saying nope we're going to force you to reopen at that point we're not going to give you better working conditions we're not going to give you better pay based on the fact that we deem you essential right now to keep the country moving um and if you don't go back to work, you're going to lose any unemployment benefits that you might have been eligible for. No, totally. Mm-hmm. And what you get with They Live is a combination of that stuff uh, and Carpenter basically calling the Rick administration aliens. Yeah. That and a look at what we were just being peddled at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, everywhere you look, and it's cr- even crazier now, I think, everywhere you look, you have a magazine telling you how you need to look. You mm-hmm. have a commercial telling you that, you know, you'll get a date if you if you drink this soda, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, if you wear these special if you wear mm-hmm. this hat, you know, you'll be right. the cool guy. And all this stuff is it's, it's, it's like subliminally telling people right. then and now that you are not a good human being. You're not a good individual. Your self-esteem is shit unless you have the latest this unless you, you have to wear consume. this. Exactly. Obey what you're told consume these products and then you'll be a good you know individual one of the mm -hmm. you know you finish i'm sorry Uh, yeah i don't even know where i was going one of the nice little touches of this movie is whenever piper or whenever nada catches a glance at the television like if he's watching it through a shop window or if he's like in a store and the tv is on um or if he's like peering in the window of an apartment and someone's watching tv and you catch an ad or a talk show everyone there is always talking in these extremely vapid 
um, yeah. terms. Like you have like one woman who was like, when I'm on TV, I forget myself who I am for a minute. And I think like I'm a model and I can go anywhere. And it's this really vapid anti-intellectual, just the most like cotton candy and marshmallow fluff type of conversations or advertisements you're seeing. It's a really kind of like, it's a nice, not, I wouldn't say subtle because not much in this movie is really subtle, but it's a nice little touch overall, kind of like really driving home the message of the movie. Yeah, and and I think the movie also speaks on the MAGA stuff that we deal with today. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's supposed to be such a welcoming slogan in their eyes. Mm-hmm. Make America great again. Mm-hmm. That completely plays down the horrific things that we've been through throughout mm-hmm. history. America, I love being American. I love this country with a passion. That being said, we've never been great. You know, we've 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 struggled as individuals trying to find our place. You mm-hmm. know, like if you're not a white male, you're fucked. Right. And I say that as a white male. You know, like mm-hmm. if you're a woman, you're not as good as a male in in their eyes. If you're African American or a minority or LGBTQ, you're not as good in anyone's mm-hmm. eyes. Right. You know, it's it's this very vanilla box of what mm-hmm. an American is right. that that speaks volumes in the current administration and Reagan's, and especially in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like it's 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 so relevant to today. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's like still fascinating about this movie now is obviously one of the th- things that say the conservative movement does really well is all of their messages are short and to the point. Obey, consume, work, work eight hours, sleep eight hours, play eight hours. They're short, they're succinct, to their to the point, and they hammer and it's repetitive everywhere. Obey, obey, obey. You see. Uh, consume over and over marry and have children but you see these messages subliminally repeated hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times on the other hand you have this underground rebellious movement and they can't get their shit together you have this um hacker who comes on the screen like a number of times and he's talking in this really flowery language he's running on and on he kind of just rambles Okay, and it's easy to tune him out. Like anyone that hears him is like, Jesus, this guy again. He doesn't really capture anyone's imagination. He doesn't really capture, really bring anyone over that's seeing this message over to his side because it's just this rambling text. And you have to really process and think about what he's telling you where on the other hand you have just these short succinct to the messages that are right to the point and i think that kind of really neatly highlights the divide between like say conservatism and liberalism overall where you know look i'm a card-carrying member of the left we are now an hour into this podcast and how much have we really said at this point like we tend to ramble a little bit um we're not able to kind of wrap ourselves up in a soundbite overall. Um, so while on the left, we're kind of like tripping over, over our own feet. And part of that is because you have this movement that is heterogeneous by nature. Like you have a lot of different groups and subgroups you're trying to serve as opposed to here's one small slice of the pie that we want to all keep for ourselves. on the conservative movement. 
and they all tend to look the same, it becomes a lot easier at that point to kind of like line up one behind one another at that point to, to hammer the message home. No, totally. And I, I also love the kind of juxtaposition between the two leads in this movie because mm-hmm. they come at they come at dealing with those hardships that we're talking about in very different ways at first. You know, mm-hmm. like Frank is very much I've seen this shit. I'll do what I can mm-hmm. to survive. You know, whereas Nada kind of goes along with it at right. first. You know, it takes that moment of him figuring out what the hell's going on for him to mm-hmm. get on board. And I, I think that when we think about They Live, I mean, naturally, the first thing we think about is Roddy Piper, which is, I mean, he's great. But mm-hmm. Keith David as Frank, I think, is just as enthralling to watch in mm-hmm. this movie. I mean, he's just, his character's so good. David sells uh, his character of Frank's rage so well. You hear it in his voice. You, not only that, you see it in his eyes. You can see this fire behind them when he meets Nada for the first time where he tells Nada his story. Like, look, he's seen the steel mills of Detroit close down one by one. He's seen millions of people put out of work and he calls out the government and he calls out corporations um, for kind of the game they play with one another. He's like, look, so the thing about Nada is he is a one talent. I'm sorry. The thing about Frank is he's telling Nada, look, the next time, one of these factories closed down, we should put a sledgehammer through it. And he is a real firebrand and he's talking like a huge game overall. Nada's response to that is basically saying, I have faith in the system and the game's not rigged. And Nada will tell himself and others like, sure, like I'm down and out right now, but I can pick myself back up again. And when Piper delivers a line to Frank, he's like, look, I deliver a hard day's work for my money and I just want the chance. It'll come. I believe in America. I follow the rules. Everybody's got their own hard times these days. Um, what's interesting then is when the little community, that shanty, well, you're really like, um, there's a lot of static there, and I think it's the mic. Uh, how about now? Uh, do you have like a laptop at home? Uh, yeah, I'm on it right now. Okay. Okay, so I take it the headset you use is um, the microphone. Use, is the microphone I, like a plug-in? Like, is it like the ones that drip down from the ears, kind of? No, no. I, I usually just record straight with headphones. Right. Does that do the headphones have a built-in mic? Like, where's the mic? No, they're to? they're just they're just Apple headphones. Is there static I, right now? Yeah, I'm wondering what you I use because I know the Apple headphones have a microphone built into them. The little white ones? Yeah. Wow, I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Oh shit. Because I'm I sorry. wonder if because what I think it is is like your beard presses up against the mic and it cats causes that scratchy okay. sound. How about this? Is that better? That's better. I might even okay. send you out like the second microphone I have. Um, I'm just using, I want to upgrade the one I have anyway, but I have a second of the same one and it's, okay. it's an okay USB mic overall. Um, and you just have to like change the settings and the, no, totally, like, totally. You're there. All right. I'm going to start that over again. Yeah. And it's not the end of the world. It's just like a little scratchy thing. It's not like it's awful, but you know, no, I mean, yeah, if there's anything I can do, I'd rather do it. Yeah. You know, you can shave your beard. Uh, you know what? I, I'd like to. 
Don't, you don't want to do that, do you? I'm shaving my head again on Monday, and my wife is already angry at me. Oh, my, my wife. I, I'm going to be in the doghouse if I shave my beard. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I won't ask you to do that. Um, all right, I'm going to pick up again. All right, go for it. All right. So, Nada is the one base, – I'm sorry. Oh, God, I keep – Frank is the one basically telling Nada – Next time one of these companies gets a bailout, we need to put a sledgehammer through their fucking doors. Um, he's pissed off, but he's smart about it. Nada is basically telling Frank, like, he has faith in the system and the game's not rigged. And he's saying, sure, you know, I'm down right now, but I can pick myself back up again. He tells uh, Frank, look, I deliver a hard day's work for my money, and I just want the chance. It'll come. I believe in America. I follow the rules. Everyone's got their own hard times these days. So he's taking it again from this perception that there's this idea of American exceptionalism that anybody, if they work hard enough, can come out ahead. And Frank knows better. Frank is much smarter about it. Well, what's great about that, and I, I think it, it kind of speaks on Carpenter, just Carpenter being a genius in his writing is both of those characters start out in, in those ways and those mindsets. And it's it, when there's that moment where Piper puts the glasses on and kind of realizes that mm -hmm. he's been wrong all along. He's mm -hmm. bought into this idea that if you do this, everything will be fine. Kind of like what you spoke on earlier. Whereas Keith David's character, Frank, it kind of has the opposite effect. Like he's so in tune and he's so on that path of believing what he believes that when but right before that fight happens he refuses to put on glasses mm -hmm. he doesn't want to mm -hmm. see exactly how things are right because he's kind of stuck in his ways and his belief mm -hmm. system and it's so i think it's just so thought-provoking to watch frank knows too like i think that it's no accident that you have these points of views being held by a black man and a white man and mm -hmm. getting back to your point jerry we taught when you were discussing before about how there's this white privilege that exists in America. And, you know, because of the color of your skin, you can somewhat believe in this idea that sure, I can get ahead as long as I work really hard because the game is already rigged in your favor. Frank mm -hmm. kind of, he's seen this, like Frank has seen this play out before and he kind of gets it as like, you know, an African American, there's a target on his back already. So, when it comes time to fight, he doesn't want to take a part in it because he knows he's already that much further down the line. Um, he tells Nada early on, he's like, look, you know, the game is this, like, game of life is get as far ahead as you can, and I'm going to blow the, the person next to me away to get ahead. Like, I'll blow it out your ass at that point. Um, so he's angry. But he also has this understanding that there's not much he can do about it. And if he tried to, he's going to be that much more of a target. Even before Nada puts on the glasses, what really sets him on this path, like he sees the police stop, basically rush in and destroy this little community that wasn't hurting anybody. These are mm -hmm. people, these are people that have less than nothing. They only have each other and they all rely on one another and they're not hurting anybody. And the police come in and not only scatter it, they decimate it. Well, I mean, that even goes and, you know, I'm not trying to make this like a, a, a racial thing even more than, you know, mm -hmm. we obviously know there is in this country because it's fucking lame. But I mean, even this past week, man, 
Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I forgot the I forgot the individual's name, but like I've been reading about it nonstop and it just breaks my heart every time I do. You know, you had an African-American man just going for a fucking jog. You know what I mean? Just going for a jog, doing absolutely nothing. And he was fucking gunned down by this ex-cop and his like his redneck mm-hmm. son because basically, you know, oh, because he fit the description of somebody that was home mm-hmm. invading. A description that all that was is an African-American mm-hmm. male. You know what I mean? And that speaks on that scene in They Live. That mm-hmm. They were doing nothing. And right. they wanted – and the, the government and the, the, uh, the group, the alien group, they just decimated this place based on a hunch. You know, like, like they didn't just arrest people. They destroyed everything. Mm-hmm. And that speaks, on, that speaks on America right now. Mm-hmm. It speaks on America right. forever. That what we do is we don't use right. common sense. We destroy. And it's mm-hmm. unfortunate and sad. Right. Yeah. And the case of Ahmed Arbery in, yeah. in Brunswick, Georgia, you, this gentleman who, like you said, was gunned down for no other reason besides he was jogging. And he, quote unquote, fit the profile of being a uh, person suspected of like robbing another home. Uh, and the original district, the district attorney of the county, George Barnhill, basically received the autopsy report on April 1st and said, eh, I don't see any reason to um, charge Travis McMichael, Greg McMichael, uh, and William Bryan. He said, you know, they had probable cause in order to do that, giving the, um, were protect, quote-unquote, protecting themselves using deadly force. And they, this same district attorney is one who went after an African-American woman twice for quote-unquote voter fraud because this woman had the um, temerity to help a young woman who was voting the first time, basically instructing her and, in, oh, here is how the voting machine actually works. Like, she almost spent years in prison. Um, the first trial was a mistrial. The second one... It, came pretty obvious very quickly what Barnhill was up to and she was let off quickly. But this African-American woman almost spent years in prison for something so minor and really not even a crime where these three gentlemen were going to get off with murder, um, get away with murder at that point. And it speaks to where we still are in 2020 as a country. The only reason these men were eventually arrested was because the video leaked. It wasn't because the police saw the video. It was because we saw the video. Yep. And you know, it's, it's a graphic video. It's unfortunate. Mm -hmm. And you know, that speaks on the character of Frank and they live. Mm -hmm. I mean, he knows that he has a target on his back Mm -hmm. just for the color of his skin. Mm -hmm. And you know, and I've never dealt with that, you know, Mm -hmm. like I've never dealt with that because to be honest, I'd rather not, but I do have white privilege and it Mm -hmm. fucking sucks. You know, I can't imagine a world where people will think that I'm like going to rob somewhere just because I look like somebody that would shop at fucking Walmart. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, what if they're like, oh, you're white. Obviously you're a redneck or something. You know, like it's silly, like this profiling that happens. And, you know, while it's more of a political and like thing having to do with like consumerism and like Reaganomics and stuff there are racial statements and they live mm-hmm. and, right. and I think they're just as profound and just as important mm-hmm. to, to uh, you know, respect when people watch the movie as, as anything else, you know, Frank mm-hmm. is definitely a character who's lived his life 
knowing that no matter what he does, no matter how great of a person he is, he'll also he'll always be runner up as a human because of color of his mm-hmm. skin. And it's it's a bummer. Absolutely. Yeah, you're a hundred percent right on that. And I just lost track, so I'm gonna have to edit a little bit more. I thought this would be a nice easy peasy one tonight <laughs> to just kind of throw together. Right. Um Give me like one second here because I did lose track of my thought. Uh, we yeah we were talking kind of like on on Frank and stuff. I think mm-hmm. leading up to the fight, the protesters, the yeah. Um, yeah. you know another you, you see right now you see these people that are protesting against a virus essentially and saying like my freedoms are being and it's this dichotomy between individual freedom and civic responsibility. Um, you have armed white men storming the capital of Michigan and they're not arrested. They're screaming in police officers' faces and they're essentially storming a government building, like armed to the teeth. Mm -hmm. Yet nothing happens to them. You have, they're small numbers. Like, and what really bothers me is there's, the way this is sometimes covered by the media for clicks or for ratings is you have a few hundred idiots that are out there protesting versus tens of millions of people that are being responsible. I think the latest numbers show that 82% of Americans agree that social distancing needs to continue. And even if things open up tomorrow, they're still going to stay at home because 82%. Yeah. You can't, wow, that's, 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 it's, you know, in some polls it's lower, but as of right now, like that, you're seeing some polls with that high of a number. Um, if you had the same protest and everybody was an African-American male who were licensed to carry firearms, you would have people in riots. You have cops in riot gear taking them out right away. It would not be a peaceful protest at that point. You know what I mean? It's like, that's not how it would be seen. No, I I agree 100%. So let's talk the fight. Let's kind of take it down a notch, I guess, right Right. now, right? (laughs) People are like, Jesus. Yeah. uh, The fight. I, I, I think that the first thing, there's two things I think happen when you think of they live at at least for me Mm -hmm. when i think of they live i think of the bubblegum line Mm -hmm. and i think of the fight because this fight there's a fight in they live and if any of you haven't seen it any of you listeners haven't seen it please don't listen to this episode yet go watch the movie but there's a fight in they live where basically frank's trying to drop off john's check to him and john nada is like so he's so on board trying to get Frank to put on the glasses so he can see, you know, the truth. And he like, Frank does just not want to hear it. He does not want to hear it. And it results in, I forget how long it is, but one of the best cinematic fights of all time. Yeah. And when you think of like fights and movies that day, you would have these indestructible action stars, you know, bullets bounce off of them. They would take like absolutely like, inhuman amounts of punishment like the kind of punishment that would kill a man within 30 seconds and they basically shake it off like it's a mosquito bite you know and then they would like knock out their the, the bad guy with one punch basically They're not these guys <laughs> just you you have like guys punching one another in the dick they're like they just want to win there are so many moments in that fight 
I mean, it's one of the most realistic fights around. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, the fight I'm about to mention right now obviously isn't on par with that. But there's, uh, in the third Escape Plan movie with Stallone, where it's Stallone, the fight, and it sounds silly to say out loud because I'll probably get a few chuckles, but the fight Mm -hmm. is between Sylvester Stallone and Devin Sawa. Mm -hmm. Oh, boy. (laughs) And what Stallone was tired of doing choreographed fights. So he thought it would be a good idea just to fist fight Devin Sawa for like, I think 50 seconds straight. Jesus. And these, if you watch the movie, these two guys are going at it with everything they have for real. And like the movie itself, it's pretty throwaway, but that fight scene, it reminded me of they live because I mean, yeah, they live was choreographed, but it doesn't feel that way at all. Like it feels like a scrapper of a fight, you know, like that's, that's, it's, it's, it's hard to watch at times. Cause like, so there's so many moments in that fight and they live where you're you find yourself thinking like there's no way those guys aren't going to have internal damage i think i'm trying to process the fact that there are three escape plan movies <laughs> well stallone says the second one is the worst movie he's ever made oh, which sucks wow. because i mean i i love stephen miller as as just a person as a director so i mean that's a bummer to hear but the third one it's it's pretty fun did stallone forget that he made um Oscar, rhinestone <laughs> rhinestone and oscar and stop, stop or my mom will shoot which did i saw in the theaters st- by the way oh so did i did you ever hear the story behind that really quick no please tell stallone played a trick on uh uh or schwarzenegger i believe played a trick on stallone saying because they had this competition throughout the 80s and schwarzenegger played a trick like oh man i'm thinking about doing this movie stop or my mom will shoot so stallone mm-hmm. jumped at it first and Arnold got the last laugh because he was never thinking about doing that piece oh, of shit. Oh, <laughs> Arnold. That's like, have, have you ever seen the documentary Pumping Iron? Yes, yes. So, oh, it's like before, oh, I think it, it, it predates Conan the Barbarian, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So for listeners, it's a great moment in that because Arnold was a, a two-time Mr. Olymp- Olympus already or Mr. Olympia already. And he was best friends with Lou Ferrigno, who's best known for the Incredible Hulk. And he would went out to eat the morning of the uh, finals with Ferrigno and Ferrigno's parents and family. And Schwarzenegger had won the contest twice at that point. But to psych Ferrigno out, he was like, oh, I can't believe it. Like three time Mr. Olympic. I can't believe this has happened to me. Like that I've won three times over the best bodybuilder in the totally psyching <laughs> out Ferrigno. Like just playing those head games. Like, Fucking what Arnold, a master, man. man. What a Arnold master. is just a goddamn national treasure, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, totally. So. That and his, really quick, his son, Patrick, mm-hmm. uh, owns owns a Blaze Pizza franchise at the Grove in, in L.A. <laughs> oh, great. Is that the but same anyways, Patrick from Daniel Isn't Real? Yeah, yeah. He owns oh, a Blaze Pizza. But, uh, yeah, no, the fight and they live. Like, it's hard to watch because it hurts mm-hmm. just watching it. Like, it, it doesn't feel mm-hmm. like they pull any of their punches. It's brutal. Right. Well, Carpenter has said, like, they were, like, smacking one another around. I mean, Car- I mean, obviously, Piper knows what it's like to, quote, unquote, fake fight. And the thing about pro wrestling is, like, they hit one another. I mean, yeah. everything is choreographed. Everything is planned. It's If you know what you're doing, it can be very safe. But shit still hurts. So you have Piper that is like delivering these like back suplexes and you know, at one point he does like a tombstone type of pile driver and power <laughs> slam on David, you know, and you, I was watching the behind the scenes stuff on they live 
last night with you know with uh, with Imelda kind of like directing all the stunts and everything. And yeah, Piper would like slam Keith David onto like this thin <laughs> mat, right? This mat, this mat was fucking thin, and it's on top of this concrete, so you know it's padded, but that shit still hurts. So. They really like beat the hell and I'm sorry, like you can pull a punch to hit someone in the beans, but you know, <laughs> you just you know, this is something that like our, our female listeners won't know, but like you just kinda like graze your balls and And you feel it in your throat. You feel it you just wanna curl up and die, you know? Yeah. Um, it's 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 funny because like holy shit, man, this fight that and like a mm-hmm. couple things. First of all, and even in action movies, you know, even even in that arena, that fight is way too long. Mm-hmm. You know, like even like a main, not main boss fight, but you know, like the end fight between the protagonist and antagonist, like sure. uh, you know, Van Damme versus you know Stallone or something. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a good epic fight, but it's maybe a quarter of the amount of time that they live. That yeah. fight is. It's maybe that, a minute or two versus like almost 10 minutes of two guys pounding one another in a back alley. Yeah. I mean that, and to be completely honest, I've never been in a like realistic fight in my life. I mm-hmm. mean, the worst I had was like, I, I beat up a kid with his crutches for saying something like racist to a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> so you beat up a kid on crutches. Oh, Jesus. There's a kid with crutches that was calling a friend of mine, the N word. Mm-hmm. And my friend was like a very like pacifistic kind of person, you know, mm-hmm. like, I don't even know if that's a word pacifistic, but anyways, he was, he was a very like peace driven person. Mm-hmm. So he wouldn't step up to this kid who was bullying him. And I did, but I've never been in a fight, but that being said, but the I kid was on crutches. He was a bully on crutches. Maybe he oh. got his ass kicked by someone else. But <laughs> but anyways, I've seen a lot of fights in person, and I've never seen anyone doing, like, pile drivers and body slams right. like that. Like, it feels like a WWE match. Mm-hmm. Like, it's insane. And you would see, like, a few years later, Piper, when he returned to the WWF, had, like, a Hollywood, like, back alley brawl, a uh, Hollywood back alley brawl fight with uh, Goldust at the yeah. time at WrestleMania uh, 10. Um where they like beat the bag out of one another and it was like meant to look like a, you know, they were in a Hollywood back alley. It was a crazy fucking fight between the two of them overall. That was obviously directly influenced by this. And even like, I'm not a fan of the show family guy, but there's like a long running um, bit where like Peter Griffin and a giant chicken fight one another. And it goes on like, it'll literally cover like a third of the show is this like fight between the two of them. And you just see that that through line from they live all the way to like Peter Griffin, again, fighting a giant chicken. Well, like the, the impact that this movie has had on so, like so many Mm -hmm. things is huge. I mean, uh, Green Day had a video that was very, they live inspired. Mm -hmm. Anti-Flag had a video that was very, you know, that, uh, I mean, like I said, uh, obey that company. Mm-hmm. I mean, their whole campaign and their whole slogan was born of this movie, you know, and like everything from the fight uh, to, I mean, I, I just think pop culture. I, mm-hmm. I think that none of us really realized how big of an impact yeah. this movie had. That and when it came out, like it was number one for a little bit. Yeah. You know, it, it really, its release got pushed back a little bit because it didn't want to compete with Halloween 4, which is kind of mm-hmm. funny. 
but like this movie, I mean, it was well received by the oh, box yeah. office at first. I mean, it wasn't like a, a huge, massive success. But when we talk about Carpenter, I mean, it's usually Halloween, the thing, you know, the fog, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. But they live, I think it's a huge movie in this filmography. It really should have propelled Piper to a a, a, a bigger movie career. Mm-hmm. So because really, he only did what one or two movies after this? He did a couple things, yeah. He you know, but nothing like you would kind of have thought that he would do overall. And you know, not nothing like, like Dwayne Johnson and no, people like that. No. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he could have gone on to have a had like a very kind of respectable movie career, but for whatever reason, um, it didn't work. I mean, it wasn't like you had someone like Hulk Hogan who was in my God. Suburban Commando, man. Yeah, you know, no holds barred. <laughs> no holds barred. Mr. Nanny, suburban, you know, Santa with the muscles. Um, he got every opportunity, and he didn't have a, a, a fraction of the chops that, like, Piper delivers, like, just an incredible performance here. And a lot of it, again, because Piper was used to telling stories in the ring without dialogue, a lot of the best bits come from Piper delivering a story with just like these facial expressions, just like yeah, his body his language. Eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his like, eyes and his body language. Like when, they're very, yeah. When he sees that shantytown torn down by the police, you see this shift and it's, it's almost disbelieving look on his face. And you can see, you basically see him understanding that this idea of the American dream is really a facade. And like, that's when he gets angry. Like he feels lied to like later when he goes back to the church the next day, he doesn't just like move the panel that was um, keeping, you know, that he had discovered the day before. He said he knew something was there, but not what it was. He doesn't just kind of like move it and then look what's behind there. Like he kicks that fucker down. Yeah. Um, so you can that, that's what really sets him off so i don't know like to me piper is so good just so good in this movie overall like i can't cannot say enough good things what about you know the bubblegum line it's what's really funny is i watched this with ada last night i had her come down and had her stay up way too late to kind of watch this movie um and when it got to the bank scene and he started with i have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. Like she recited that line along and it, it was the first time she'd ever seen the movie. And That's I'm like, awesome. did we I'm like, did we watch this together? She's like, no, but I know this line. She's like, I know I've heard this before. So Isn't that crazy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like my kids know that line too. Everybody knows that yeah. line. Like it, it's it's mm-hmm. become a part. I mean, like mm-hmm. I've said over and over, so I hate to overuse the, the term, but it's mm-hmm. become a huge part of pop culture. Yeah. Especially in like the meme generation you know yeah and it's this thing where like piper would feed carpenter he's like these are the kinds of things that i would say if i was cutting a wrestling promo like if i wanted to put fans in seats and sell tickets and tell them like you gotta come see me like beat the shit out of you know mr wonderful next month at Madison square garden here are some of the things i would cut in a promo and carpenter took those things just added them to a script there's so many too like not only that bank one but like he just talks so much shit Mm -hmm. to the aliens right when he's like you know it's like lady you look like you know you've had like your head in like some cheese dip since 1950 (laughs) he's like and he turns it what sells it even more he's like he turns to the woman next to her and it's like you look okay like you i can deal with but you are one ugly son of a bitch you know it's great you know yeah Um, 
Yeah. So, I mean, and you see him, like, that gift he had, you know, that natural charisma and that gift that he had for Gab overall. Um, what do we think of the end of this movie? Like, it doesn't, you know, during this, Carpenter has his end of the world trilogy where each of those movies, like The Thing, uh, Prince of Darkness, and In the Mouth of Madness are all bleak as fuck. Um, you know, they're not happy endings. And the at the end of They Live, like Piper's character, like Keith David, I forgot that he gets basically killed off screen. Yeah, he gets shot in the head by Meg right. Foster. Yeah, right. it's a bummer. Which is like, it, and it kind of comes almost out of nowhere. Um, Piper's character dies at the end of this movie, but not before he successfully kind of knocks off the, uh, the, not before he successfully knocks off the alien transmission that cloaks all the aliens so everybody can see um, the aliens for what they are at that point. Uh, but he has a great final moment where he like lifts his finger and gives the bird to the camera with that little smile. But what do we think overall is this is as the end of the movie? I love, I love that ending so much because what it is, it's that character not only saying that, you know what, I get how life really is. This Mm -hmm. American dream that you're peddling is bullshit. And not only Mm -hmm. that, I'm going to expose you for what you are. And as I die, I'm going to give you the middle finger and tell you to go fuck yourself. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it's such a rambunctious, ornery ending that I, Mm -hmm. I love it so much. What I love about it too is you have this ending. It's kind of the opposite of the howling ending, where D. Wallace's character is transforms to a werewolf live on screen, and she is killed. And the reaction from everybody that's watching is like, "Man, special effects, man! Like what they can do nowadays is like." So it's this really tragic ending. Like she basically dies for no reason whatsoever. In the end of They Live, like you have these newscasters who all of a sudden they're exposed for what they are, and basically chaos ensues everywhere. Like, oh my god! Like, like Karen, you look like shit. You know, and everyone's <laughs> well, running around. There's that, like, like two people are in the middle of a sex scene, remember? <laughs> and then all of a sudden... What's wrong, baby? The transmission goes, and mm-hmm. the dude's naked, butt naked with an alien mm-hmm. face. What's wrong, baby? Like, right. God, I love that. It's, it's, it's so awesome. It's a, and I think you have, like, the Siskel and Ebert stand-ins, and you have Siskel going, like, John Carpenter and George Romero, they got to tone <laughs> it down and toe the line. They're too violent, so... It's a really fun little fuck you to Siskel and Ebert yeah, as well. Yeah, totally. Um, Good stuff. And the design of the alien. Can we talk a little bit about the design of the aliens? Like that kind of, you know, it, it, that very, they look like kind of ghoulish skulls, but also a little bit of that Mars attack, like uh, the yeah. Thompson trading car. I love the look of them. It, it's so interesting because prior to this, you, you've never you never saw aliens like that. Mm-hmm. They're kind of ghoulish looking. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I could totally see the Mars attacks in mm-hmm. too. But there's also like very like human aspects to the design. You know, like where mm-hmm. it, it just feels like this big combination of so many different approaches in mm-hmm. one. I love I love it. I love it. Yeah. And I love the trick or treat studios mask of it that they put out mm-hmm. a while back. They're co- they manage somehow to be comical but also creepy looking at the same time. Totally. You know, like they're they're funny looking. They they just they look a bit goofy, but at the same time, like I think it's the teeth. I think it's the fact that they seem to not have lips, um, 
and you just have the or the lips are really pulled back and you have these giant teeth and gums that really they just like fuck with me visually yeah and there's no uh there, there isn't a variety to them and i love that kind of a, autonomous look to every single one mm-hmm. you know they try to dress them up as different as differently as possible with dresses mm-hmm. and suits and that stuff but at the end of the day they're all basically the same person right you know visually and i i really love that approach to it mm-hmm. absolutely um so where does you know we talked a little bit about this but where do you think they how do how do you think they live resonates today with a modern day viewer i think it's almost spooky how much mm-hmm. they live uh is is relevant today mm-hmm. i mean everything from the themes i mean you know you have things like you know, I'm not dissing video games. I, I play them every once in a while. You know, my kids like them. But you have things like uh, Minecraft. You know, like while my kids might have fun playing Minecraft, suddenly it's like ingrained into everything in their head. You know, or like things like I remember beer ads when I was a kid or cigarette ads. You know, like I wanted to smoke when I was a kid because the Marlboro men looked cool. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know what I mean? And I think that we're still dealing with that as far as consumers. We're still dealing with that with, with you know, you need this to be a good person. You need that to look good. You need this. Girls won't like you if you're not like this. Men won't like you if you're not like this or you don't buy this or you look like this. Mm-hmm. I think that those themes and they live, the consume aspect of it is alive and well, unfortunately, right. today. And even the obey. I mean, it's when we live in a time where reporters, people of the press can't like can't ask legitimate concerning mm-hmm. questions to our president without getting banned from press mm-hmm. briefings and being told they're idiots and having all these yeah. MAGA people tear them apart online. They're you called know, nasty so much, for doing their job. Yeah, they're nasty. They're ugly. They're idiots. They're dogs. So mm-hmm. many other things. You know, you have this blind leadership to where mm-hmm. this this person, this this president during his campaign can openly mock a disabled person and that's mm-hmm. okay because right. you know what? You need to obey. And mm-hmm. no, I think it's 100% relevant to today. It holds up just as much, if not more now right. than when it came out. This to me out of all Carpenter's movies, it, it's the one that most applies to today's today's world. And I know that a lot of people have called They Live Like a Prescient movie overall and talking about how Carpenter like kind of predicted the future. I'm not sure that's 100% accurate. I mean, again, this is Carpenter's reaction to living under eight years of Reagan and this idea of like yuppies and this greed and good culture mm-hmm. uh, is not only tolerated, but it's really sought out now as an ideal. Um, Carpenter in a 2015 interview with Yahoo said they live is not a science fiction movie. They live as a documentary. This is what it was like to live through the time. And it's really a warning shot. And unfortunately what you've continued to see is this trajectory of the separation of the have and have nots. Um, I made a little note here, you know, I mentioned the unions earlier, but 30 years ago, the middle class made up or basically took in about 53% of the total income that was out there in the country. Um, Now it's down to about 42%. And that was based on 2012's numbers. And it's only gone down since. What you're Mm -hmm. seeing is money continuously shoveled upwards. 
to a very elite few, few where I believe 1% of the, or two, two to three percent of like all, of the country owns almost like ninety percent of the goods at this point. Um, mm-hmm. This didn't change, and what is ha- that class doesn't typically make anything. Okay, they have other people make it for them. Like their wealth is completely predicated on other people doing their work, buying their goods buying their services and this idea like one of the messages throughout the film is like don't think for yourself let other people do the thinking for you just watch tell don't read watch television instead and you're seeing that now where expertise is more and more played down in today's society and now that we have google Anybody can go and Google something and it's fact. I know just as much as the experts at this point, you know, one of the things that's funny, it's like, you know, scientists and viral experts and all them, like they're telling me I should stay inside, but I don't know, man, this kid I went to like took 10th grade chemistry with says this virus is a hoax on Facebook. So I don't know who to believe at this point. I think there isn't a better example than this last week mm-hmm. and that fucking dumb pandemic YouTube mm-hmm. video where I had so many religious and conservative uh, relatives and a couple friends online uh, who are no longer friends online because of this, mm-hmm. uh, just basically do posts like, oh man, you guys believe everything you hear with this, with this virus. Well, check out this pandemic YouTube video. Mm-hmm that they couldn't even spell the word filmmaker right. Yeah. You know, and it was, it was debunked within, I think, 24 hours and taken down. Mm-hmm. But this thing was shared by everyone. Right. All these people that are so, they're in denial of mm-hmm. the danger that we're all facing. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, like you said, you know, it's not about expertise anymore. It's not about this scientist mm-hmm. studied for years and decades to, mm-hmm. to be in this position. It's about some idiot that has fucking Final Cut right. or Adobe something and they put, throw it together on a YouTube video. And that's one of the scary things right now that you kind of hit it on the head is like, it is so easy to create and dis, uh, create and distribute false information at this point and get it out to millions of people very, very quickly. And what ends up happening is it's not as widely reported when things are pulled or mm-hmm. when things are corrected overall, like the misinformation is the front page headline the retraction ends up on section G page seven in small print. So there's this real danger at this point. And I think that's a lot of what Carpenter was talking about. There's this real danger, not just in this message to consume over and over, but to be docile, to not think for yourself, to um, just like listen to what others are telling you. Like, don't worry about it. Don't do any learning on your own at that point. And it feels like that's where we are as a country. So that's a fucking, that's a fucking bummer. (laughs) Well, listeners, (laughs) you're Prozac. No, No. totally. I'm glad our next movie alien has like nothing to do with like working class values whatsoever. And it's just a nice light kind of, you know, movie about an alien, like no social messaging there whatsoever. (laughs) Right. Oh, dear God. So what final thoughts do we have on They Live, Jerry? 
I'm really glad we did this one. Yeah. I wasn't expecting for us to get as like deep into politics as we mm-hmm. did, but I'm so happy we did yeah. it because I think when you when you talk about they lives, you know, we we always as people we always rush to like you know Roddy Piper obviously and and mm-hmm. rightfully so he's great in it or the bubblegum line, but there's so much to this movie, mm-hmm. so much to like watch it. You can watch it as just entertainment, and and it, it works on that level. But it, it's it's a movie about like really deep and important themes mm-hmm. that like like we said time and time again over this episode they're very relevant to today. Mm-hmm. Like it is kind of a documentary in some ways if you take out the alien because we're still living in that. Mm-hmm. And I think it speaks on John Carpenter's talent not just as a director but as a writer as putting a story that is it's easy to relate to and it's it's timely. It, right. I think this will be a movie that will always be timely and yeah. I love it. It's a movie where if you were to make it now, remake it now, you almost wonder how many people would be like Frank and absolutely refuse to put on the sunglasses at that mm-hmm. point and make it from that perspective overall. And it's, you know, the thing about this movie is it's so much fun. Like despite the fact that yes, it is very overt in its political messaging overall. And it's kind of, it's kind of the movie, right? I think that if you were to introduce it to people now, they might have a different reaction to it depending yeah. on the, the what side of the political aisle that they fall on overall. Um, because like there's, there's no mistaking the messaging of this movie, but at the same time, like it is so much goddamn fun, mm-hmm. um, you know, and like Piper just gives this performance that is just outstanding. Keith David is great in this movie overall. Like the alien look is just a lot of fun and it's goofy at times and it's silly at times. Um, it doesn't take itself so seriously. Like, thing about John Carpenter is he is an entertainer. Like even when he's political, he's there to entertain people. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's Carpenter very much sees himself as Snake Plissken. I think like when Carpenter looks in the mirror, he sees <laughs> Kurt Russell with an eye patch staring back out at him. Um, so the best description of Carpenter I ever heard was on the horror, et cetera, podcast, like over a decade ago when they did a retrospective on Carpenter saying that Carp- he made B movies, but he made them with an A plus level of talent. Yep. I agree a hundred percent. And that is why he is the mm-hmm. best for me. Yeah. So what do we have coming up, man? Oh my God. We have so much that I'm excited about. Well, first of all, at the end of this episode, like Mike uh, said earlier, we're going to have a special chat that uh, Mike had with Diamond Dallas Page and Booker T. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, the Alien series coming up soon. Mm-hmm. And we have the Dennis Etchison Halloween 4 script coming mm-hmm. up, which it is one of my favorite scripts mm-hmm. of all time. It is off the rails, completely different than the Halloween mm-hmm. 4 that we got. And it's wacky as yeah. hell. I'm so excited about that one. I'm really, we're, we are going to be reading that as a group this uh, week, and we'll try to get that up before the end of the week as a nice little bonus for our uh, fans. I think people have really enjoyed the readings we've done so far. I'm not sure why, because we are, I'm not an actor. Um, oh, I but, think this one will be the best, to be honest. Yeah, I really want, you know, I know Jacob wants to do Loomis, and I really, I'm like, look, dude, if you're going to do Loomis, you got to go bonkers. Like, you really got to give me, 
you know, like you, you really got to give me Donald Pleasance and Halloween five and six. Like I need to kind of hear that kind of fucking wackiness at this point. So. Well, what's funny is, yeah, our, our buddy Jacob Davidson expressed interest in playing Loomis and I didn't have the nerve to tell him. Yeah, like he was so excited that we said, mm-hmm. yeah, but I have the nerve to tell him that Loomis is in maybe like less like than a one page. page. <laughs> yeah, he's in like, and he's like, oh, can I do like another? So, but there are 40 something speaking roles yes. in this, so we're going to be doubling up. So, we're going to be will, covering. It'll be great. We're going to be covering um, that script. It's just a little fun bonus, but the next franchise mm-hmm. we're doing is Alien. And I think I've mentioned this before, but we're going to be doing the uh, Alien Quadrology. Alien Prometheus and then Alien Covenant and we're going to leave the AVP movies for when we cover the Predator series but this is going to be really interesting to cover number one because you have two movies that are considered all-time classics both in the science fiction and the action genre in Alien and Aliens and there's that debate over which one is better it's Alien of course it's Alien um you have Alien 3, which is David Fincher's first foray into Hollywood filmmaking. And the, that, to me, feels like it's going to be a Freddy versus Jason episode yes. where it's going to be like what almost got made and then the actual movie itself. Um, you have Alien Resurrection, which that's the Critters 4 of the series. So, you know. It is what it is. I don't think I've seen that since I saw it in theaters. And all I remember is Winona Ryder, Ryder in that, is in that movie. That's pretty much it's, all I remember. It's You know, I, I love the whole series mm-hmm. so much, but it's definitely a mm-hmm. Halloween H2O or resurrection no. for me. <laughs> no. And then it's going back, rewatching Prometheus um, last week on Alien, or a couple weeks ago on Alien Day and Covenant. Like, there's just so much to dive into in those movies there's just so much meat on those bones there totally, totally. Um, in terms of what scott is exploring it's like you know a filmmaker that's in let's face it who has fewer days in front of him than that are behind him at this point point. yeah the reflection on well what's the next for me um it's a really fat it's fascinating to watch him kind of have that conversation on that dialogue with himself on screen. So I am super excited to cover alien. I am also not going to lie a little bit intimidated to cover aliens. So it's yeah, good. me too. We, uh, we're getting back to uh, what we normally do and that we're going to have a number of guests uh, on those episodes. So we're really excited to bring some other voices on for the series, uh, some returning voices as well as some first time guests as well. Um, so thank you to our listeners. Um, find us over at pod and pendulum. We love hearing interactions. If you're getting that wherever you're getting your podcast, leave us a review. That's an easy way for more people to find our show. It doesn't cost you a penny. Um, and it can help us get more listeners and help spread the word. So whether you're on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, take a minute and write us a review. Um, drop us an email at pod and the pendulum at gmail.com. Um, and until then, you know, thanks very much. Stay tuned for our little bonus with Booker T and Doubt DDP. And we are out of here. Please.
understand they are safe as long as they are not discovered. That is their primary method of survival. Keep us asleep, keep us selfish, keep us sedated. They're pulling the water out of the sand like sponges. Blow it out your ass. Yeah. Hey everyone, and welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum. We have a little bit of a bonus for everyone this week. Uh, we have a pair of gentlemen here who you might know if you've been fans of like the WCW wrestling uh, or the WWE wrestling. We have a pair of Hall of Famers with us tonight. We have five-time world champ Booker T and the um, founder of DDP Yoga, Diamond Dallas Page himself. Gentlemen, how are we doing tonight? Great, man. Doing pretty good, bro. Thank you so much for coming on. This is really exciting for me. I'm sorry that uh, Jerry's unable to make it. He has something he has to take care of with his family. So I am more than happy to step in here and uh, talk to you guys about your new movie, Penance Road. Penance Lane. Hmm? Penance Lane. Lane. Thank you. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you for the correction. <laughs> sorry, but I just got done watching it. I've already seen that. We'll fix that one in post. Sorry, um, good. So I guess my first question is, you both performed in front of massive live crowds for decades. Um, how do you find that transition of being like an in and out every night live performer to something that's like a little bit more, I don't want to say relaxed, but more scripted and kind of more of a controlled environment, like where you don't necessarily always have that adrenaline rush when it comes to acting? You start off, Buck. Oh man, um, man, for me, it's pretty much, it goes along the same lines of, of wrestling. Um, you know, preparation is the only luck you're going to have. You know, you got to pretty much study it and try to make make it the best you possibly can. Um, you know, you only get one shot at something like this and you got to understand when you do it, you know, just like with, um, you know, professional wrestling, it's going to be thousands of people watching it. So you just want to do your best uh, first and foremost, because you never know where something like that can lead to. Mm -hmm. I, I got I watched it last night too, and I uh, got to put my, my 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 brother over on this. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's super! But look, is this is one of the is this one of the first movies you've done? Yeah, yeah. Uh, other than Ready to Rumble with you, I mean, it's the second movie you and I've been have <laughs> been a part of. But yeah, man, it's not something that I um, I thought about getting off into after getting uh, out of wrestling, just because I've been in front of the camera for 30 years now, pretty mm -hmm. much. And now working behind the scenes with my reality of wrestling is cool. But Tyler is a, a good friend as well as, you know, one of the guys who's been through the war with us in this business as well. Mm -hmm. So when he called me and hey, said, hey, book, I got a role for you. I said, hey, man, I'll be there for you. So for me, it was, you know, uh, you know, doing a favor for a friend, but like like I was telling you earlier, you never know what something like that is going to lead to. So you mm -hmm. just do the best you possibly can. Yeah, like book book opens that film, and it's just the other guys have all been acting for a while, and I thought mm -hmm. book looked the most. I mean, just it just it just rolled. It was real, um, just natural instincts and stuff. Uh, um, so I just got to put him over on that because I call. I actually texted him last night saying, "Dude, great job." Um, but um, for me, you know, uh, I love the preparation, you know, of getting to know whatever that role is and creating the backstory, mm -hmm. whoever that character is, because uh, they're all a version of me. Um, and, uh, you know, um, it's, you know, nice to be able to go take two. <laughs> you know, take yeah. two. Because Book and I, man, 
you know, we're in front of that. When we're in front of 20,000 people, millions of people watching, you got one take. Right. Don't fuck up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And if you do right. fuck up, don't let, let you know. finish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Right. And they'll let you know. Like the 20,000 people will let you know with that chance you fucked up. Uh, <laughs> I, They're unmerciful, man. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. They're unmerciful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I went back in the ring for AEW recently in January just to get six decades. Mm-hmm. Cliff Notes, I wrestled in 79, trying to wrestle. Mm-hmm. 23, didn't work out for me. I was working for Dusty in Florida in 89, 88 and 89. Uh, with Dusty, we Florida Championship Wrestling. My, my wrestler lost a match with Dick Slater. Got mm-hmm. to kick my ass all over. So that's the 80s. Had the 90s, 2000, 2010, I was already retired, but I came back for that one match here in Rome, Georgia. So mm-hmm. I had the five decades. And when Cody said, you got one more in you, yes, I thought, sir. When, it, when I realized it was January, it was six decades. Like, I'm mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. I got to right. do it. That's excellent. Uh, so it was fun. Um, so what do you think it is? Actually, was I was kind of pondering, like, wrestling and horror movies tend to have, like, a pretty big – crossover like if you're a wrestling fan you tend to be a horror fan and vice versa um, have you ever given any thought to what it is about those two particular kind of forms of entertainment that kind of draws the same people in uh for, i think for me um you know I, I really don't know what the crossover is but uh, i remember going to um the horror con in atlanta georgia um mm-hmm. a few years back and it was before i had ever did anything you know, um, you know, horror wise. And um, I had a huge following there. I had a lot of fans there. They were loving Booker T being there. So I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. Uh, so for me now, um, being a part of this movie, uh, Penance Lane, um, and hopefully that'll lead to a whole lot more stuff, uh, a whole lot more work with Tyler. Um, hopefully it'll get me in that world. It's almost like getting into the Comic-Con world, you know, with the wrestlers in Comic-Con and wrestlers in the uh, horror world. It's, it pretty much runs um, mm-hmm. along that same line, I think. For, for me, it was, you know, Rob Zombie gave me that part in uh, Devil's Rejects. Mm-hmm. And I've done, I've done probably th- probably about four different horror films. You know, nothing ever really got seen. Mm-hmm. Snoop Dogg's in a horror got seen a little bit. Yeah. But, you know, you look at Devil's Rejects, that to me is like horror's reservoir dogs. You know, it's a, it's a great film to be in the ensemble cast of, of mm-hmm. that movie. And, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't really realize until I went, you know, I knew I'd sell pictures, you know, from, and get people who want to take pictures with Billy Ray Snapper, mm-hmm. but I didn't realize how much the crossover was till I got there. Wow. And now that's been 15 years since I've done that. And I went to a horror comic con in Dallas that's probably one of the best cons I've ever been to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was yeah. monstrous, monstrous, no pun intended. Uh, we made a lot of money and made a lot of uh, friends, and uh, it was super cool. Excellent. And what it seems like there's just more passion in horror fans and wrestling fans in particular. Like, it's not something that people tend to like casually. And I know wrestling in particular, there's always talk of we have to capture the casual fan but it seems like once you become a wrestling fan, you're no longer casual. Like you're reading the, <laughs> you're reading the sheets, you're devouring podcasts, you're devouring 
there's like what 12 hours a week at this point of, of wrestling on television yeah yeah what is, what is it that inspires like that much passion and that kind well, of I think it's um I think it's the um you, you look at wrestling and how it's evolved over the years um you know of course you know we got WWE of course we got mm-hmm. you know AEW um but the independent world is like on fire mm-hmm. and and now like the independent horror film um, world is on fire. I mean, when you can when you can make a film your, yourself, when you can produce it, um, edit it, and get it out there yourself, um, that's huge. Um, I, me having a small wrestling company here in Houston, independent wrestling, um, it, it's it's a small company, but man, we're doing really really good. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what a crossover is to where you know people say, hey man, if I can do it myself, if it's good, I like it, let's mm-hmm. buy in. So I think that's what it's about right now. Okay. Excellent. And one of the going back to Penance Lane for a little bit, this particular movie has a lot of like an old school horror movie vibe to it. In some ways, it was almost reminded me of like the Universal monster movies that I kind of grew up with with my dad and my grandmother. Like she would pay me five bucks to stay up and watch them with her so she wouldn't have nightmares. Um, <laughs> you have like your mad scientist and John Schneider. You have these hideous mutant monsters and you even have like the return like something you really don't see anymore is like the classic mob gathered outside you know of the house with like pitchforks ready to tear it down um what was it about this particular script or um project that attracted you guys to it uh, I, I got in for the same reason the book got it originally because tyler asked me to. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he was actually at my christmas party he was like dude i got a role for you and it leads to something else. Mm-hmm. So if, if if he can get some traction with this, which I think this is as good a indie horror movie is out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, is he, I mean, he's got everything. And the I thought the ghouls, you know, the mm-hmm. monsters. I thought they were all great. And I love the uh, the girl, the girl who uh, was in that because you you felt sorry for her, and you, you know and you know, she really did a great job saying nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Snyder's one of my boys, too. Yeah, and yeah. I, I knew Book was in it. I didn't, you know, know till I watched it that John was in it. Me and John Snyder have been boys for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, super tight. And, you know, he's always the good guy. He's always America's sweetheart. Mm-hmm. The handsome one, you know. Uh, and I love seeing him as the, uh, as the, as the heel. And he did a great job with it. He did a great job with it. Um, yeah. You know, I think that um, I, I've, I've watched, you know, just about everything you could watch in horror films. Uh, and I, I guess I, I think that this, I think Tyler, Renee, the crew, um, you know, it's, it's passion. You're trying to make any movie and literally take it from day one filming all the way through editing to mm-hmm. the finished product. I mean, I've got something that's going to come out on Netflix later this year that's a superhero uh, thing. It's taken us five years to do. Okay, wow. Five years. So I know how long it takes and how hard it is without having that big money behind you. So I'm super proud of Tyler. For for me, uh, when I I got the script, um, what what intrigued me more was, um, you know, as a black guy in a movie like this, I was going to be – you know, living all the way through the through the movie. You know, mm-hmm. I wasn't gonna die. <laughs> so I, I was like, wait a minute, a brother is not gonna go out. Right. I mean, 
<laughs> and it's your and it's your brother in the movie that's the first character to get yeah. killed. So you couldn't completely go without that trope, right? Yeah. Exactly. You know, it's gotta be the writing, I loved that surprise. Mm-hmm. You know, because I didn't see the brother mm-hmm. until right when it was released. Yep. Right when you saw it, I was like, that's sweet. Because mm-hmm. I love surprises, you know? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Little eggs, you know, little Easter eggs. Mm-hmm. Good stuff, and man. You had talked about, uh, like Dallas, you had just said, like seeing the performance of the ghouls in particular and how they're able to tell a story without really saying anything. And I have to imagine that that, you and Booker in particular are really cognizant of that being that that's what you did for years. Like you told stories in the ring without having to use words at that point. So how do you, even in like in a small role, like in something like this in a supporting role, um, convey like a lot of emotion or a lot of character in like the limited time you might have? With well, for, for me with Tyler, that, that scene was like, he, he laid it out to me and where it could end up you know, like in, future films mm-hmm. and it really you already knew about his past life mm-hmm. as far as being a convict but now it lays down a little bit more and opens up more questions mm-hmm. and knowing he needed what he needed and that as Hyde said I could come and and take care of him and we'll meet again and that little homage at the end with the bike mm-hmm. you know like where's it going so for to me it was uh it, I, I think that uh the job I did was adequate, and it mm-hmm. helped the it moved the story forward. Mm-hmm. I think it's um it's, it, it parallels with professional wrestling. Um, you know, we're we we're artists, um, and sometimes it's small things. Um, I always you know teach my students it's the art of doing nothing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, and making it and making it so much. Mm-hmm. And 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 a lot of times um, reactions, um, you know, uh, movements. Um, it means so much more than actually um, speaking. So um, I think um, Tyler knowing this business um, and moving into that business is, is perfect for him. And I, like Dallas said, I was just happy to be a part of, of the whole thing. Right. Yeah, he, our, our stuff in the ring, you know, we, we tell stories with interviews for sure, mm-hmm. but we tell more stories, you know, in the ring with the work. You know, going, whether it's babyface versus babyface or babyface versus heel, you know, you can tell how the story's going by how the crowd reacts. And I'm not talking about just crash and burn, crazy bumps. I mean story, like when Book just said, when you're doing nothing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Gaga, as we will, Shakespeare. Shakespeare, baby. (laughs) Um, So what... I know Tyler is someone that he transitioned from WCW to roles in the X-Men franchise. And I think he's probably best known for playing Michael Myers in Rob Zombie's Halloween movies. Um, sure. It seems like there's been like a steady stream of like ex-wrestlers that are now achieving more success, transitioning from wrestling to acting. Um, one question I kind of had being that, especially with AEW right now saying that they want to provide things like health insurance for their wrestlers overall. Has there ever been any talk of why wrestlers aren't already included in the Screen Actors Guild? Where Nash said it one time, right now, Booker and I, if you just took our careers in wrestling Mm -hmm. and what we got paid, what we made, we would be making so much money 
you know, when it came out of retirement and stuff, mm -hmm. we're both around the corner from it. Mm -hmm. You know, me, I'm right at it. I could be collecting right now. That was a lot of money that would have to be paid out. Mm -hmm. And there was, you know, it's, it's controlled by like the top layer mm -hmm. and really nobody wants to uh, create that, be the guy like Jesse Ventura was going to do it. Right. Jesse he got, got ratted out. Man. He got mm -hmm. blackballed. Right. You know, so, you know, we, we're, we're not really politicians by any stretch, but mm -hmm. we know how to play politics better than anyone. Right. As, as well, as well as to add on to that, um, as far as the insurance thing go, I've been in the business now for 30 years mm -hmm. and, um, I always had insurance. I always, I, I've never gone a year without mm -hmm. having insurance, even if I had to cover myself, but I was making enough money, um, to cover myself, um, mm -hmm. as well. Um, and at the end of the day, um, this is entertainment. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's like no other entertain a form of entertainment that you will ever um, see in your life. It is mm -hmm. a secret society. It really is. It is. And, 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 and I, I mean, it really truly is. But uh, when we, um, you know, like Dallas, you know, Dallas knew what life was like before he ever got into this business. Mm -hmm. I knew what life was like before I ever got into this business. So when we got into this business, we were preparing to get out of this business. So that's what I stress to the young guys mm -hmm. that's in this, you know, of course, what you're saying is valid and what you're saying is uh, something that uh, we need. But um, mm -hmm. I stress to these young guys, preparation is the only luck you're ever going to have in this life. So it sounds like that's part of it because you're teaching wrestling as well right now in Houston and running your own promotion. It sounds like that's something you teach the young adults that you're school at the wrestling school, not just what to do in the ring, but also how to prepare for life outside of it. Well, now again, uh, I, I was I paid my taxes bare yeah. before I ever got into the wrestling business. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I knew what life was like before mm -hmm. I ever got into the wrestling business. And, you know, and, and then when I was 30 years old, I was thinking, how am I going to be able to get out of this and still be able to sustain and take care mm -hmm. of my family? And, 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 and one thing about life, you cannot wait for someone else to take mm -hmm. care of you. And, and trust me, I understand I'm the insurance um, um, thing, but but you cannot just like this pandemic we're going through mm -hmm. right now and people want to get back out there and go to work. A lot of people say, I'd rather take debt over um, living like this. And that's just mm -hmm. the way we are as human no. beings. I know my wife and I are pretty fortunate. We work in education. I'm a counselor and she's a psychologist, so we can work remotely. Um, it's trying. Like I've spent my whole week getting food for two dozen families in the uh, town that I work in. Um, but we're lucky that we can do this where a lot of people don't have that luxury and they have to get out there to work right yeah, now. It's yeah, very difficult. Really um, is. didn't mean to bring it down there a little bit. No, no, it's just real talk. This real talk. <laughs> um, what about, you know, when it came to time to transition out of the ring as active performers, both of you have had really a lot of success in, in what you've done. Like Booker, you've been like an announcer on Raw. You're hosting the Hall of Fame podcast. You're part of WWE's FS1 backstage show with Renee Young and CM Punk and others. Um, Dallas, you've obviously had a tremendous success with DDP Yoga. Um, what, when did you decide like those were the avenues you were going to take once you were going to stop being like in ring performers and how did you find that transition to kind of more backstage or really stepping out of that comfort zone for new roles? 
Was that too yeah. convoluted a question? That might have been convoluted. No, no, I got, I'll, got, I'll go first. Good. For, yeah. for me, it was like when I when I blew my back out at the end of '98, and I you know, I heard from the surgeons that my uh, my career was over, mm -hmm. and that's when you know. I decided the guy who wouldn't be caught dead doing yoga will do it, see if it works. It really helped me in the first couple of weeks, but it wasn't giving me everything. So that's why I added in the rehabilitation techniques, the old school power push-ups and the dynamic resistance. And, mm -hmm. and I just kept doing it every single day because, I mean, when you have three spine specialists tell you you're done and you know your money's going to be gone, like the big, I just signed a multi-million dollar three-year deal. Mm -hmm. So I would do anything. Um, in less than three months, I was back in the ring. You know, uh, 42 days, so my career's over. At 43, I won my first world championship. And that's when I knew, because it's kind of like brushing your teeth. You know you're going to do that a couple of times a day, every day. And I knew that for me to go on into my mid-40s, that with that injury, and both rotator cuff tears and both knee, uh, three knee surgeries that I was going to have to keep working out. And this was the best workout ever. And I just realized that, okay, I can share this with people. And it literally, in the beginning, I was just working on my acting career when I retired, mm -hmm. but I was always doing the program and I was always building it and revamping it. And, uh, one day I just thought, man, no one's ever going to believe in the 48, 49, 50-year-old actor who didn't come out here when he was hot. I'm still going to keep doing that. And I'm still going to keep getting roles. This has been a – if I get lucky this year with Gods and Secrets and something happens with it, if we get lucky, because it's all about luck. You don't know what's going to click with the people and what's not. But if I get lucky, it could change my life again. And it will have been a 22-year overnight success. Mm -hmm. uh, wrestling was an eight-year overnight success. DDPY was an eight-year. When I finally went into that, it was 16 years ago. And uh, for the first eight years, man, I just kept investing money in it. Mm -hmm. And I was $548,000 in before I friggin' went, Boom, I'm going to pay myself now because mm -hmm. we're killing it. Like Book, he invested everything into his own promotion, building his own thing. And I've been down there. The facility is amazing. What he's done out of the passion for the game is amazing. You know, you got to be passionate about it. And for me, I could talk about my program and my success stories of the people I've worked with for for fucking days <laughs> because I'm passionate about it and uh, I love what I do. So that's the secret is finding something you love to do mm -hmm. and then figure out how you're going to make money doing it. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. For, for me, um, um, I was 30 years old. I was in WCW and uh, I was, I was, you know, hadn't totally broke through or anything like that, but I was moving up and um, I was at one of the pay-per-views and I was sitting next to one of my heroes that um, I watched as uh, as a kid growing up. His name was Chief, Chief Wahoo McDaniels. Um, he came back to do one of the uh, pay-per-views where all the old timers would come back and 
put their boots on and get in the ring. And I don't know how um, you know Wahoo was at that time, but I guess he was in his maybe fifties mm-hmm. and um, late fifties probably. And um, he had he had he had, pro- he had trouble putting his boots on. And I and I was I felt really bad because I like I said I sat next to him and. And that, that day, I was like, man, I got to figure out how to get out of the business. I got to figure out how to get out of this. Um, 15 years ago is when I opened my wrestling school. I was still active as a professional wrestler. I spent so much money. My wife thought I was, you know, uh, you know crazy. <laughs> I'm serious. She thought I was crazy, man, because I was, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to bank on myself. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's something that I love doing, uh, something that I'm good at. Um, and and I'm, I'm, I'm a really good teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a really good mentor, and 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 I felt like that was something that I I could do for forever, and and um I never thought I would have my own wrestling promotion or anything like that, but I I built everything around young people, young kids. Um, I don't have I'm the oldest guy on my crew by design. Um, my right hand man um, that um, is my producer and my editor and my writer. He, I, I met him when he was 16 years old. Um, and in high, when he was in high school, I did a mm-hmm. speaking engagement. My partner on my radio show, Hall of Fame, he came to me when he was 18 years old. He's 26 years old now. So I invest in young kids. And, and literally, they have expanded my wrestling school to what it is now, to where last night we had our first online school um, session, and we had 20 people Wow. Um, in our first session, and uh, we do it on every Thursday. Now I got another twenty for next week, and I'm I'm trying to not to you know get it you know to where we got to you know uh, you know just go crazy on that. But mm-hmm. it's, it's 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 amazing what young people uh, can do if you just give them the ball and let them run. Mm-hmm. I got a slogan. Uh, my slogan is uh, we've we've said uh, respect your elders for years, but we got to start thinking about respecting your young people mm-hmm. because they are the future of you know. Uh, of the world and we got to give them a lot of problems. And what would you, you've worked for a number of different promoters and a number of different like head bookers. What would you say like some of the most valuable do's and don'ts were that you pulled from working with them? You know, the things that you, aside from like working with youth and letting people kind of run with the ball, like yeah. what other things that you see behind the scenes that you kind of carry over with what you do now? You know, I've worked, um, you know, in WCW, and I saw the rise of it. You know what I mean? I saw the fall of it. So mm-hmm. I, I saw the mistakes that were made, and I've, I've worked with WWE and worked with Vince McMahon, and I see, um, you know, you know, what he has, you know, done to take his business to new heights. I've seen, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, people come in and, you know, try to change things and make a lot of mistakes. So my, uh, trust me, I think the mistakes is what I, I, I live on more than anything. The mm-hmm. biggest thing I think in my promotion is uh, to always be able to be on the outside and look at it from that perspective. I can never put myself in the game. I can never be one of the boys. I can never be one of the wrestlers. I can't, I can't mm-hmm. be the reality of wrestling champion. It can't be yeah. like that. It's got to be about them in order for me to always look at it from an objective perspective. Okay. And in Dallas, what's it been like for you recently? Like Jake Roberts has been featured pretty prominently on AEW and he's not only put on like a master thesis and what, how to cut a promo in 2020 showing that he still has it, um, never lost it, but also he's been able to get physical recently. And I have to imagine that you said you can talk about your success stories for DDP yoga. He's got to be near top, the top of the list. What's it like watching him being able to do this now after, you know, some of the struggles he had earlier in life? Oh, God, dude. I'm, 
I went through them all with Jake. Uh, I always say without Dusty Rhodes, there is no Diamond Dallas Page, but without mm-hmm. Jake Roberts, there's no three-time world champion. I never get there mm-hmm. because he took me under his wing. He lived with me for three months in the 90s, you know, in the early 90s, until he lost a 12-foot black cobra mm-hmm. in my house, no bullshit. And that's yeah. what people say, he's out. I know that, that's, a, that's a house rule is losing a 12 yeah, foot. That really flipped her out. Mm-hmm. But uh, he never stopped. Like, I would go to his, 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 he went back with his wife at that time. And he lived in Lawrenceville, uh, Georgia, which is an hour from me. And I'd hop in my car after I had some matches and I'd go out there and he'd watch him with me. And sometimes he'd be like, what the fuck did you do that for? Mm-hmm. You know, other times he wouldn't say anything. And then other times he would, you know, we just banter about what was going on. And it taught me, you know, I learned more sitting on a couch than I actually could in the ring. It was super smart. And so I always wanted to repay him. Uh, and so five years ago, when we put him in the, I guess it was 12, 2012, Eight years ago, mm-hmm. when he came and moved in with me, um, I just wanted to help him because he wanted to help himself at that point. And that was huge. And then we brought Scott Hall in, too. And if you've never seen The Resurrection of Jake the Snake, uh, the only place it is right now is on our uh, uh, DDP Yoga Now mm-hmm. app. And if you go to... Uh, iTunes or Google Play and download the app mm-hmm. like free for seven days. So you can see the movie for nothing and get off and not do the program because uh, it's on there. But uh, uh, he was a huge handful over that time. Today, he stays with me. He's like the most mellowest cat mm-hmm. ever. Uh, we work out every day he's here. You know, if he's here seven days, we'll work out five. Uh, he's right up when I hit the gym. Uh, he's really doing, uh, you know, when you actually, uh, you know, let yourself go on the road and work. Like he does so much. Back before this pandemic hit, that cat was working 24 plus days a month. Mm-hmm. Doing Comic-Cons, doing his one-man show doing wrestling shows, not getting in the ring and being physical. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of people, you know, got to see Jake go through this transformation, but the boys still didn't know if it was real or not. And uh, Cody and I obviously are very tight. And at some point he called me and he said, so tell me the real deal about Jake. I said, you see the real deal. He goes, what do you mean? I go, he's sober. And if you're thinking about using them, I think it's a great idea. Mm-hmm. And he goes, right, I don't want to think about it. And he let it go for a while. And then he came back and he goes, I'm thinking about using Jake. Still a good idea? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I think so. And um, they were leery coming in. But when they saw him, and he's so, since he's gotten sober, he gives back and tries to help so many people now. Mm-hmm. And that's his, that's the biggest thing, you know, that he got. You want to feel better about yourself? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Booker does it every day. I've seen what he does with his mentorship program 
with the kids and not just that these kids aren't wrestlers. These are mm -hmm. just kids he's mentoring. And I've been in book have been typed for 20 years now. And again, he's the same way. He knows that helping people makes you feel good about you. Mm -hmm. It's just great karma to have. And, uh, you know, Jake today, you know, when he got the text, the last text from Cody, and he said to me, uh, you know, they, they want me to come down there and spend three weeks there because they don't want Jake flying all over. Mm -hmm. They don't want to take a chance for him to get anything. Plus, to, I, from what I understand, they blood tested everyone. Right. My daughter told me that. Jake told me that. You know, so, you know, they, they're really serious about making sure everything's cool, you know, before they move forward. And Jake said, man, I'm thinking about not going. I said, um... Maybe you want to call Cody and see if they got anything for you after this. Mm -hmm. Cody went back, yeah, we got stuff for you after this. And that put such a, a – the biggest pat on the back that Jake could have. Because Cody has got to be one of the most respected guys in the business right now. Oh, absolutely. You know, mm -hmm. and uh, for him to believe in him. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I watched Jake at dinner that night. That's I, a – he just felt like this. Yeah. Like, thank you, God. Like, for That's a big stamp of approval. That other chance. Mm -hmm. He got up, shook my head, hugged me, mm -hmm. and, you know, because I didn't do it, you know. Mm -hmm. But the work that he got to here, I guided him. I didn't put the work in. He did it mm -hmm. all. Just like in the ring, I did it all. But mm -hmm. without his guidance... You know, we're probably not sitting here today. You had that helping hand. And Booker, are you are you comfortable talking about the mentorship program that you're doing with the kids in Houston? Oh man, um, of course I'm comfortable with it. I mean, it's yeah. it's just it's what I do. Um, um, I have my foundation, uh, Booker T Fights for Kids, um, as well. Um, we, you know, help kids. Um, you know, scholarship um, every year. Uh, we we're in the community. Um, like I say, trying to let kids not make that same mistake that I did. Mm -hmm. You know, of course my book, you know, from prison to promise, um, is something that we push on kids mm -hmm. to read and pass it on immediately. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so, um, you know, as far as my school go, um, I, I don't know how many kids I, I've got, in, I got, I got in my school right now, but they, they come in like on a, on a weekly basis, uh, to where I have to put photos up just to remember their names <laughs> because I got that many. I'm serious. I'm serious. You know? So, but um, it's just uh, about um, giving them a place to where they can actually, you know, be a part of something. You know, just like you said a second ago uh, about Jake getting a pat on the back. Most kids, uh, most people, oh, that's the only thing that they need is a pat on the back yeah. and saying, hey, man, you did a hell of a job. And it will take their life and change everything. Um, I've seen it. Um, I've given a kid a pat on the back and said, I well of a job. He's done it and he's broke down crying and his dad was there watching this. And it's something that his dad probably had never said to him before, you know, so uh, now hugging the kid mm -hmm. and saying, Hey man, you know, I, I love you. You know, um, you know, uh, some young, young lady, um, uh, young girl, excuse me, uh, have a problem and, you know, got pregnant and she needs somebody to talk to i've been in that situation where they come and talk to me about it you know so it's about um you know just trying to give guidance and and like i say um leadership um uh, more than anything because a lot of young people just don't have leadership in 
so want that so bad. Um, so for me, uh, I'm in a position to do it. Um, it. It doesn't cost, like my mother said, doesn't cost you anything to be nice to people yeah. and um, you'll get it back tenfold. So um, I, I'm just going to keep doing it. I'm just going to keep walking um, in that same direction. And yeah. um, hopefully I just keep getting the blessings. That's, you know, it's when you talk about people being nice to one another or just giving that pat on the back, that's what I see at the, especially at the school I work with, like a lot of the kids just don't have anyone that's ever not only said nice job, but at home, like no one taking an interest in them sometimes. And, you know, I see like sixth grade kids that are kind of raising like their third grade and second grade brothers and sisters sometimes, and they just want attention. And if you don't give them an attaboy, They'll get attention other ways that we don't like. So, definitely, definitely. You know, um, do you guys have time for a couple more questions? I know you, pro, you know, got stuff going on, but do you have time for a couple more? Yeah. Um, yeah. What have you guys been doing with? I mean, obviously, we're most of us are sheltering in place right now. We're kind of all living out of our homes. What have you been doing to kind of keep yourself sane right now? Well, for me, um, I'm I, I do what I what I always do. Um, um, which is, you know, a lot of training in the gym, mm -hmm. working out. But um, I, I like doing a lot of yard work. And, you know, I always uh, – I'm one of those guys that uh, believe in, you know, picking up the yard rake, you know mm -hmm. what I mean, the, the weed whacker and, <laughs> and cutting the grass. It's kind of stupid. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, I, I like, you know, making sure every bit of grass is in the, in the, in the right place. You know, mm -hmm. uh, you know my, my, my home is my castle. Yeah. Um, and if I don't have to leave here, um, it's great. But I, I love going to be able to look nice so I can go outside. But I got uh, nine-year-old twins also, mm -hmm. a boy and a girl. And, um, you know, right now with the homeschooling, um, it's been it's been crazy around the house. Yeah. You know what I mean? I got, you know, three 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 females in the house. And, you know, mm -hmm. me and my son, is it, 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 I have to just, you know, get out, go play, play around of golf or something. It's a handicap uh, match going on there. <laughs> it's crazy, but uh, I'm loving it. You know what I mean? Um, you don't get a chance to spend time at home um, with the family like this ever mm -hmm. uh, when you are in a business like this. So I'm just going to take it in stride. And when it's over mm -hmm. with, you know, I'll get back to normal. Like, like you said, I'm blessed. I'm fortunate that I, I have a job to work. Mm -hmm. You know, I still have a job, you know, where I can do it from home. Um, unlike so many out there in the world right now. Um, so I'm just blessed, uh, you know, still be able to do what I do and, and support my family. How about yourself, Dallas? You know, for me, it's, it's kind of a blessing, man, because I, I hate to travel. Again, I had a bunch of gigs that mm -hmm. I had to do. And when I didn't have to do them, I was like, Cool, because I didn't. You know, I, I want. I like stay at home. I've already mm -hmm. seen the world twice. I don't need to see any more of it. Mm -hmm. um, what I've been working on for DPY is these new. Um, I call it DPY jacked, and there's these blood flow resistant bands that you wear on your arms. If you want, you can wear them on your legs too. But I only focus on the arms because it takes care of your upper body. And I've developed a whole new line of workouts. And everybody's like, because they, they see me wearing these bands when I'm working out or doing a video for YouTube or, or for uh, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. Uh, they're like, dude, when is, these, when is, when is GDPY Jack going to happen? And you got to remember, everything's shut down right now. Right. So I've been going back and forth and getting prototypes. And I, I'm supposed to get my last prototype on Tuesday. And the guy said I could actually have, you know, 100 to 500 of them. In uh, in 
10 days. So we'll see. You know, that's been a passion for me because I'm always looking for how can I change the program again? Now, I closed down my DDP Yoga Performance Center soon as the shit hit the fan. Mm -hmm. uh, because one of my guys was in a, a Waffle House that someone had, you know, that they quarantined. So I was like, just shut it down. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know when I'm going to open it again. We've, we've been open to stuff for AEW. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know this, but like all the production that isn't in the ring, like we do all that. Like, okay. Wow. Like, like Comeback Studios mm -hmm. does all that. So we've been working on it. We, we did that for Cody for four months mm -hmm. for nothing. Just for give him stuff to help him mm -hmm. get to double or nothing, which was their next big show. Mm -hmm. We did our road twos, all that, and then Tony Khan came in and bought it, and you know I continued to help him from there with that. And uh, it's really, boy, my boys have really turned into amazing storytellers. Mm -hmm. So we still have that going. Our biggest, you know, our biggest income comes off of the DVDs and the app. Mm -hmm. So home workouts. Yeah. Our, yeah. Our shit's gone through the roof, man. Mm -hmm. And it was already doing really well. Like, I'm su super blessed. But mm -hmm. now, you know, I got to be, you know, TMZ got a hold of me when I said I wasn't going to open. I didn't even tell anybody that. You know, like, I didn't tell anybody. But someone had heard from TMZ. They called me and they said, would you mind coming on the show? Yeah. Because they had heard that the governor here in Georgia was opening. Well, he's opening because Georgia – is a really rural state. You know, the only place it's jammed with people is Atlanta. After that, mm -hmm. I bet you friggin' half the counties or half the towns don't have any COVID. Mm -hmm. You know, so why put everybody under that scrutiny? Mm -hmm. For me, I just was saying, I'm 64, so I'm erring on the side of caution. Because sure. I don't want to get that shit. Yep. Whether it's the big thing that they say it is, or it's just a virus. Mm -hmm. I don't want it because I know it attacks your lungs. Yeah. And I got a bad throat to begin with. So I don't even want to fuck with it. No, it was really good. Yeah. Gave me a place to sit in. Plus my daughter, since I divorced my daughter and my little grandbaby, have moved in mm -hmm. here. My new girlfriend's in here now. So Booker got the meter when we were together mm -hmm. on one of our shows. Uh, one of the last shows that we did. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Comic Con. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I've been really blessed, man. And I, I, and I just put four cameras. Whoa. Four cameras. <laughs> Made it back, almost took a bump. But, uh, I put four cameras mm -hmm. in the workout room. So I just put a live workout up on my app. And I put one up on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually going to put for the next three weeks up on Facebook and what my goal is, besides letting people see what it's like, what we're doing, mm -hmm. I'm trying to, they don't have to pay, but I'm trying to raise a dollar a person mm -hmm. for the CAC, which is the Cauliflower Alley Club. And um, uh, bottom line is, you know, a lot of the boys aren't lucky enough, like me and Book are, yeah. who had a really successful second act. You know, they're, they're not. And they're out there and they're, they don't have any income coming in because there were no comic cons now. There was no, there's no wrestling shows, you know? Yeah. So my, my buddy, B. Brian Blair was one of the killer bees, the CEO yep. of uh, 
Cauliflower Alley Club. So I've worked up to try to, to hook him up with some cash. Mm-hmm. But also trying to do it over here too and trying to get those guys, you know, anybody can just donate directly. Mm-hmm. And the CAC is one of the very few places that 99.3% of the cash coming in goes to the boys. So it's like, legit. Knows, you know, like yeah. we went into to do that whole cauliflower hour thing. Like they don't fly you in and put mm-hmm. you up. Yeah. You want to be a part of the club? Yeah. You fly yourself in, you put yourself up and you get your plaque. Yeah. <laughs> Has, Which is cool though. Give the money to the boys who need it. Yeah. Do you, do you guys think that maybe because the curtain has been pulled back a little bit, you know, with obviously with things like the dark side of the ring, um, with all the ex-performers that have podcasts that share stories about the way it's been, that that in some way has maybe raised performers' awareness that they need to have a second act overall, that because it's less secretive than it used to be, now you're, you're not forced, but you're maybe more aware that there's a life after you're able to go into the ring. Because it almost seems like there's a generational divide between, you know, I would hear stories about some of the performers from the 80s and what they would do, like closing down the bars. Yeah, and now yeah. it seems like now they're just playing like PlayStation in hotel rooms um, and having a protein shake. Yeah, well, I, I know, I think WWE is a lot different than it was back in the mm-hmm. time we came up. Um, just in general in the business, I think it's different um, with the younger guys. Um, often the totally different things that we were in. I mean, our devices were totally different back then just because of the time, the era. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, you look at, you know, like like an Xavier Woods, guy's a PhD mm-hmm. guy. guy guys, he's a pretty – and it's a lot of smart um, guys um, and girls in the business nowadays. Mm-hmm. I think they're going to understand, you know, like the Bellas having a wine collection, uh, wine mm-hmm. line, you know what I mean, and being able to – you know, parlay the success into something totally different. Mm-hmm. We didn't have social media uh, back then to be able to parlay success after mm-hmm. uh, wrestling as well. We didn't have Comic-Con back then the way mm-hmm. these guys have now. So, of course, they're going to be able to see life a totally uh, different way than we mm-hmm. saw it um, the way we came up. Okay. And who's funny, you say that about the games. I went to a party over at Cody's house mm-hmm. um, about a month ago. And I went downstairs and everybody was on that video game. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're all around and, and the boys playing each other. It was really funny. Yeah, uh, yeah. But that's what, you know, these guys grew up on video games. You know, uh, Xavier Woods, like you were just talking about, X, you know, he does all reviews on all mm-hmm. the games that come out. And right. that cat, he's a smart dude. Yeah. And he's making and he's making and he's making he's making a boatload of money off of his um, YouTube channel as well. You know what I mean? So yeah, I mean these guys um, definitely understand that it's it's more about than just wrestling. Mm-hmm. And who do you think is a performer right now that could lead maybe to the next boon? Like you both were part of the biggest boon in pro wrestling history with the Monday Night Wars, with the Attitude Era. I mean, really, without WCW doing what they did to kind of revolutionize how wrestling was presented. I don't think you have the success of WWE after that because the competition really forced WWF at the time to kind of kick into high gear. And now maybe we'll see that again with AEW and the WWE both having to kind of play off of one another, if not compete, because I think there's room for both, but to maybe kind of push the other. Um, 
who's a performer right now that you think could lead to that next great boon, and why is it Kevin Owens? <laughs> uh, oh man, that's a, that's a that's a tough question, man. It really is. Um, it's a lot of it's a lot of young talent out there. Mm-hmm. A lot of good young talent out there right now. Um, but I'm looking for great young talent. Mm-hmm. I'm looking for someone that's going to show me something um, totally different than everybody is showing me right now. So a lot of guys out there seem like um, if they could dive through the ropes or over the ropes. They, they're, they're, they're good. They're happy, mm-hmm. you know, but like Dallas was just talking about, like I was just talking about a second ago. Um, I want to see that kid that can go out there and tell me a story and make the fans feel a certain way when they leave the arena. Um, it's very few young guys that come up with that thought process and that concept in their head right now. I got this one kid out there on the, on the circuit right now. His name is uh, Gino Medina. Um, he's an MLW right now. Um, and I, and He's been with me since he was 16 years old. He's like 24 years old now. He's a prodigy. He's, mm-hmm. he, can, he can work with anybody in the world, Spanish kid. And, um, and, and so, so if, if it's someone out there um, that, that can make a splash, it's going to be someone like mm-hmm. Gino Medina because um, he's learned the, uh, the art of, of the um, Shakespearean performance, and that's what I'm looking for. i tell you, man, I don't know, Book, if you got to see MJF or not. He's good. Yeah, he's really good. That, that kid... He like for twenty just turned twenty four and he got man. He's actually he's actually um, 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 Gino is in the same group with him in MLW. Oh okay. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I'll definitely want to check that kid out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've gotten pretty tight with uh, MJF and mm-hmm. uh, I always tell him I said the only one who can fuck this up, bro, is you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but you gotta know when to. Turn off MJF. Mm-hmm. That's, That's the point. That's the one. That's the point. Such a great heel. Yeah. Such a great Thank you guys so much for coming on. Let's end with some things you guys have. If you want to talk about what you have that you want to promote right now, Penance Lane is now out on video on demand. I would definitely recommend it. Like there's obviously there's not a lot of new movies we can watch right now, but this is well worth like your six buck rental right now for video on demand. If you want like a fun, um, gory, bloody, and really the in 82 minutes, the movie doesn't have any slow parts at all like it starts on a run and a gallop and it keeps that whole way going that whole way what else do you guys have right now that you would like to take a minute for our listeners to check out or promote oh for me uh just my um reality of wrestling online classes every thursday Mm -hmm. night um go to realityofwrestling.com you know for more information um definitely um you know, I'm joined the ride with my um, reality of wrestling, um, wrestling promotion as well. Um, got a lot of great episodes on YouTube as well as Fight TV right now. I think we're up to 270 mm-hmm. live episodes of uh, reality of wrestling. And uh, check it out um, and be a part of the row. Okay. Uh, pretty simple for me. You want to check out DDP Yoga? Go to ddpyoga.com or DDPY. Seven days free, baby. Read that. Plus, you can see the resurrection of Jake the Snake. The app is in, insane. From motivational Mondays every Monday, new cooking recipe every week, new workout every week. There's over 300 of them up there. Mm-hmm. Don't think you're going to get your ass kicked because level one, you if you can't get out of bed, I got three workouts for you. Which help you get the fuck out of bed, mm-hmm. <laughs> work out there, then 
use a chair, then you get to go to beginner, all the way to psycho extreme shit. So it's all there, DDPY or DDPYoga.com. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time tonight. We really appreciate it. I think this interview pairs really well. We're covering They Live this week, so I think that kind of worked out really well. Um, thank you so much for your time, and guys, stay safe. Um, hope you and your families are able to stay safe and survive through this, and you know, thanks for all those decades of entertainment. Appreciate you as well. Take care, guys. Take care. All the dog. You got it.